0: Welcome to Polycast Evergreen, Season 11. I'm Daniel Danku-Quick. In addition to being lead co-host on Polycast, I'm also its co-founder, producer, publisher, and editor. In revisiting the show's 11th season, I selected and ranked the 10 topics I feel most retain their relevance even months after their initial release. Recurring guest host Candice Albin re-listened to all of these episodes to select the 10 most representative moments for the show, alongside an honorable mention. One and one, let's get it done. Number 10 from episode 294. Favor for ongoing as compared to upfront costing of gaming content from Civilization's publisher prompts distinctive reactions.
1: Oh, yeah. Let's talk about the fact that Take-Two would like to give us microtransactions. Great.
2: Okay, sure. (laughs) I
3: kind of half went into this thread earlier this week and then just ran away. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah because in their conference call with their investors they said they wanted to focus on things that have recurrent consumer spending which basically that means microtransactions or in this case i guess they want to do something like with civ piecemeal out the dlc instead of giving us a proper expansion pack
4: isn't that what they've been doing since they five
1: <laughs> i know but at the same time it's like come on we don't need this
2: They said, we aim to have recurrent consumer spending opportunities, that's what they call it, for every title we put out at this company. It may not (laughs) always be online or virtual currency model, but there will be some ability to engage in an ongoing basis with our titles after release across the board. There's an opportunity to monetize that engagement. There's a lot of room for growth. This is just the beginning. I'm scared, you guys.
1: Uh, I am am scared
2: for the health and future of our beloved franchise because I have a feeling Civilization's current expansion packs, scenarios, and DLC as they work now aren't going to be enough to push all of Take-Two's greedy buttons, okay? So it becomes a microtransactions game that has serious implications for the game experience, most notably the encouragement of a pay-to-win philosophy. What happens when a player is willing to pay so much more than his opponents they can just buy his way to an unfair victory? I'd be more okay if I knew that there would be a game option to exclude microtransaction activities for players who still want that fewer experience. And the games where it isn't disabled, those who pay their own money can still get what they're willing to pay for. But I fear Take-Two wouldn't be okay with such an option due to the lost revenues and the likelihood that most hardcore Civ players would be adverse to microtransactions. Granted, that's probably a biased statement since I don't see myself wanting to do a bunch of them. I've been playing games 35-odd years. I prefer to pay X amount of money up front and milk that experience for whatever it ends up buying for however many years. But it sounds like Take-Two is going to demand more from its titles and its consumers. And if those demands aren't met, or Phyraxis hopefully digs in and says, we're not compromising the integrity of our game experience, we'll take to abandon SIV, because it's not providing that kind of revenue they're chasing. And can SIV find a new publisher in that case? Or will every entity big enough to support them be stuck in that microtransaction mindset? And finally, if they are going that route, as the Chief's words seem to imply, when would it start? The next installment, the next expansion pack, or the next patch? How long will we be able to enjoy the experience untainted by real gold becoming game gold? It's I already
4: started a little bit. <laughs> Look at the strength of DLC civs compared to normal civs. You're already seeing this a little. Especially because now you can play DLC with non-DLC you can play against people who don't have the dlc and use dlc sieves that are significantly stronger i mean there are some dlc sieves that are on par with things like rome and whatnot like they're good but they're not fantastic but, some but then of these you DLC have like australia or
1: indonesia and you're playing that against somebody who only has the vanilla sieves and you're going to be a little bit overpowered
4: or persia or i mean okay aztec is free at least but that too is extremely strong compared to most of the vanilla sieves. now like these are still in the same neighborhood but this kind of stuff creeps in. It's the same, same thing that happens with Europa Universalis series. They're pretty nuanced with it. The way they introduce stuff over time makes it increasingly dependent on you buying the DLC to get the full experience. Early DLC, that was less true. As you go on, they introduce mechanics that assume you have the previous DLC and patch out the ability to do old stuff. We can see that happen here. I mean, we got 2K over Civ. So, I mean, <laughs> if you look at like NBA 2K or something, for example, it, it, the outlook's not good because <laughs> we're talking 2K here.
2: Well, they said 48% of their revenue, Take-Two, comes from microtransactions now, from games like that and Grand Theft Auto. Yeah.
5: Let me but play you're... The devil's advocate here. Now, the way that I look at this, games have not increased in price generally in the last 20 years or so. We've been paying 60 bucks for a AAA game for how long now? At least since 2000. Given the nature of inflation, everything has doubled in price since then. So there's kind of halfway in between that we need to recognize that game developers aren't making as much money on the basic games as they used to. And that's kind of a problem if they can't support themselves from it, especially with the ballooning budget stuff.
4: Okay. I still think it's very dirty money to sell a retail title and then implement dlc in a way that locks the people who purchased a game out of the experience to a degree to increasing degree over time if they don't buy the dlc then i, I really don't like that especially the, that coincides with bug fixes and all that stuff as well that's what i'm seeing a lot at least in the strategy game genre uh, except enough-
3: we're talking civ and they never lock you out of stuff in the patches we're S- do like paradox does where I- they put some stuff in the patch but then there's you know, to unlock it, you have to have the DLC. Civ has never done that.
4: Man, we're I talking does. 2K, though. We yeah. are talking 2K. Uh, oh no, 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 no. Happens. I'm not. We're going E4 out here. I don't want to see Civ go to eu 4 out. That's what I'm it's saying.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just All don't want people up. to be able to buy units, wonders, buildings with real money in the <laughs> game. That's no, no, just that, gonna, no, no, that's fine. Gonna that
3: probably, or it's going to no. Me it's me. Gonna no, that part is fine because if you're dumb enough to spend money on something, well, you spent money. Nobody will play with you. Yeah. That'd be also your single-player game. They tried that with Civ World. It didn't work. Yeah. Obviously, modders do a lot of that for free anyways. (laughs) So for Civ side, if they tried to say, hey, buy these wonders, modders are like, but we made a lot of those. So, meh. So, yeah, I don't think on the Civ side you're really going to get that sort of thing. What you're going to get is what we basically get. A couple more Civs, a couple more of this, a couple more of that. It adds up for slightly more options but it's not like oh i don't have this dlc so i'm gonna totally miss out on something obviously okay with that
4: happened yet No, t- it's 2K. i do not trust 2k yeah.
3: obviously what we're actually talking about here is more of that microtransaction in-game not dlcs like civ does but more in-game yeah. buying, right. buying loot crates and crap like that no,
1: we don't have that? an in-game yeah. avatar that that stuff would apply to so we're for the moment, safe from that kind of oh, thing.
4: Oh no! You can definitely make a model with bull crap, yeah. Like, oh, okay, you did this in game. Here's a loot crate, and if you pay m- real money, you can now get special skins for X Civilization. They absolutely can do craft like that, and yeah. I would expect well, to see that. Oh yeah, no, I, if somebody it's, if brought it's that visual thread,
1: fluff, too. that's fine. It, it, as long affective. as it
4: stays in that realm, yes. And yes. League of Legends does that fantastically. Completely different game genre, but, yeah. On well, it's free to play. Man, they make a lot of good money on their skins and stuff.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think part of it is, I mean, Ken has kind of alluded to it, because of Steam sales and other such things like that, where they might put out the game for $60 expecting to sell it to a million people so that they can afford the development money they put into it and future stuff for big games anyways. That's what they're expecting so that they can you know, afford to pay for it. But Steam sales come along and cut the price down to 5 bucks, and all of a sudden, they're getting almost nothing out of it.
5: Things like that. It doesn't happen or, as much anymore, though. They've canceled a lot of the Steam sale stuff.
4: The yeah. devs can say not to do that, too.
5: Yes.
4: Because RimWorld will never go on sale, like the dev is trying to said it. And it's so, yeah. to date that it has been true. That it has never been on sale, yeah. even one time. So they have some say on that, if they want yeah. to not do that.
3: The thought line is, the free-to-play market is a thing unfortunately so if they say put out the game for way less money up front then they're looking to monetize the experience of games that last five six years like league of legends or other ones that were free to play like that therefore they have to find a way to make money to pay for keeping them running for that long so things like league of legends where there's actual servers and things that have to be paid for on a monthly basis it does make a bit more sense that they try and find a way to constantly monetize it. Otherwise, those servers aren't going to get paid for and the game goes away. Stuff like Civ, where there are no servers for them to support, when they stop making content for it, they stop paying for it. So it doesn't make much sense to go for the freemium model.
5: I just did a little bit of math. Prices in the last 15 years have gone up by 25%.
3: Relative.
5: Relative to... Like, U.S. inflation rate.
3: Yeah, well, no, I mean, most games are still 60 bucks. So
5: favorite. a game in 2005 at $50 is worth $62 now. So yeah. the price has stayed pretty much the same for 15 years. Ish. Publishing companies want to make money. Yeah.
3: And if they feel like they're not making money off their product because they're spending, like, a crap ton of money on development. Which is hard. They'll, they'll try and find other ways. All right, so we done beating up on... Uh, publishers for trying to make money off their games
1: for now <laughs>
4: no but we should stop at <laughs> the moment
1: yes okay <laughs> number nine
0: from episode 280 the case for how and why there is unlikely to be a strategy titled mirroring civilization
4: So we have an uh, email from Slow. Another big-picture question. We saw a terrible SimCity, which allowed a smaller company to make City Skylines, which is fantastic. I'll have to take um, his word on that for both games. We saw Phyrexis make a space game beyond Earth, which was terrible, <laughs> lol, and allowed Paradox to make Stellaris, which by all accounts seems to be very well done. I personally, uh, stepping aside from reading Slow's paragraph, I have my doubts there. <laughs> and he says he doesn't know. He doesn't yeah, like space yeah, games. Yeah, so, I
3: would suggest not
4: so much. Knowing who's working on it, and not to bring too much of a personal issue on it, but I find that very doubtful, as uh, proven liars usually aren't that good at this. Anyway, do you think the commercial success of Civ 6, the overall fan reaction to the AI in Civ 6, will allow someone to make and challenge a new title like Civ 6? Like Paradox, for example. Well, I don't know that Paradox could do it. Firaxis no. has attempted to borrow things from titles like uh, Civs and not implement them well. But I don't expect, well, any better job to be done if they attempted the reverse. Uh, (laughs) I would like to see competition, though. Can it happen? I think it's not impossible, but somebody who knows what they're doing has to be the one to do it.
3: Okay, but uh, to get the comparables better, Beyond Earth and Endless Legend were similar. They are quote-unquote space-type games fantasy-slash-space-type games on the planet. Stellaris is not the same as Beyond Earth.
1: Yeah, I was going to say.
3: No, I didn't even not even close. It. Stellaris yeah. is closer to Galactic Civilizations or Moo or Endless Space or any of those actual Space 4X games. That's what Stellaris is actually going after. So yeah,
2: okay.
3: Beyond Earth being terrible did allow Endless Legend to get a boost because many people went to Endless Legend instead, so there was that. I don't think overall fan reaction to the AI at Civ 6 will allow someone to just make a challenge, a new title like Civ 6. Because if you're specifically talking about the AI, then no, you're not going to have somebody come along and go, We made better AI than they did. I mean, well, you yeah, can't you, really market yourself something. as the
4: same thing, but you would need another historical turn-based strategy. And yeah. they would need to have the design allow the AI to be competitive. They would definitely want to beat Civ six with controls and turn time, because that would bring a lot of people. But that might not bring everybody. It would just bring a decent chunk of us. And uh, better balance slash tuning. The biggest problem in my mind, aside from the UI thing, which is a low-hanging fruit, in Civ 6, is that there just aren't that many interesting choices when compared against the number of things the game makes you do. So if a game can bring that back, if you can have more interesting choices per time playing the game, then yes, a turn-based strategy with a historical theme can beat Civ 6. I can easily see that happening because there's a lot of time you spend in Civ 6 where you're not making choices that matter.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of time in many games. I mean, that's pretty high bar to throw at. Oh, absolutely, and Civ 6 alone. (laughs)
4: But like um, I'm saying, how do you beat something like Civ 6? I mean, Civ 6 is a, it is part of a firmly established franchise it, that is well loved. If you want to actually yes. compete and win, you need that high var to steal. Oh people.
3: yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, the, that's the thing. Paradox sort of semi competes with Praxis in the historical side, but they go bit. to very specific sections of time, and it's probably easier for them to do that because then they can put more depth into it, or at least historical depth. Um,
4: But it's not like a McDonald's versus Burger King compete. There's definite overlap. They can definitely be a substitute for one another if one of the product qualities drops sufficiently. But it is a very different game. It's got much more real-time elements. And yeah, like you said, it's much more focused on a single period where you emphasize the strategy is very different. It's a lot more diplomacy-centric than any of the Civ games have ever been.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, Paradox isn't the only other strategy game place oh, out there not there's, at all. there's plenty <laughs> stardoch being one of them kind of almost sounds like this is a paradox fans trying to appreciate it for Axis, but yeah it kind of does i'm well acquainted with issue. both
4: and i think they both yeah. need to improve <laughs> personally yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: I, mean, I wouldn't expect paradox to be this shiny person in this discussion <laughs> oh god no <laughs> Especially their financial model and everything else like how expensive is he you afford to play
1: yeah
4: no. <laughs> yeah <laughs> you mean to play with like a decent experience yeah because you, you can buy the vase game with no dlc pretty cheap on a sale but <laughs> <laughs> good
1: luck getting
3: all the dlc And put it all in the dlc yeah so yeah i yeah, mean they are they're... much more flagrant with patching
4: problems yeah, and selling DLC that makes it easier than even before if you buy the DLC, but otherwise you're hosed. At least for EU4, that's happened numerous times. I yeah, cannot vouch uh, it strongly for the other Paradox games because uh, I haven't played much.
3: I know Stellaris still has mid-to-late game problems, as in it gets really, really freaking boring mid to late game it still has the problem of you build exactly one fleet for an entire universe spanning empire because to do otherwise would get you wiped out because everybody else just built a fleet (laughs) and yeah there's other silliness i haven't actually played it in a while but they're apparently slowly working on mid to late game stuff now
2: well the paradox
4: games have the benefit of design when it comes to ai threat quality Similar to how Civ four did. Like, the Civ Four AI was god-awful with tactics, but because of the design, it was mashed a little bit. Yeah. And Civ Six just that's... doesn't have that benefit. So it's really glaring.
3: Yeah. I mean, granted, Moo came out, and it was like, ooh, we're going to remake Moo! And <laughs> kind of went, what? What? Go... Yeah, go away. That was boring. It didn't live up to its own hype. I seriously doubt anybody's going to try and make a game that's exactly like the whole across the mass time versus individual chunky sections
4: yeah it's high risk that you don't need to take because you can make a historical theme game that's less direct competition so you can still attract people
0: well yep. yeah that's the thing i have never played eu never any of those titles but of course i know people on this panel have and i know other people have as well and i see games like that and i think about what choices civilization did not make how they chose to abstract something, how they chose to dilate time or not dilate time, and then another title comes in and tries to say, hey, you wish you could do this in Civ? You can do this in this game. So it's not so much, as you were saying, has been getting a direct competition, but at the same time, just because there was a terrible SimCity or a terrible Civ title, maybe it's just the word choice, and I'm just being super picky about the Mm. word choice. It doesn't allow another company to make it. If it's terrible, it can help shine the light on an alternative that's comparable being developed and released at the same time. But I think the opposite can also be said. Man, this game was really good. I'd like to play another game that's like this, but perhaps looks at it from a different aspect. Hey, if you like Civ, you may like EU4. Or hey, if you liked Beyond Earth, you also like this title. So I think it could be either or, quite frankly.
4: You can get a niche vacuum, though, like if a series sufficiently falls off a cliff. I'm not sure SimCity is there or not because I haven't played it in so long, but it sounds to me like that kind of happened. (laughs) It's
3: Uh, it's not fully off the cliff, but yeah.
4: Like Like, If you go like 10 plus years where every release from this company mm -hmm. trying to make this game is not just bad, but like really bad, like people will just choose not to play the game even if there's no alternative to it in that niche then, yep. yeah, that's when you, you can actually see someone get replaced.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, that's I, I don't sort of what's these... going on with Endless Legend versus Beyond Earth. Endless yeah, Legend, I, I think, so. still has people playing it.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's not like there's a lot of strong history prior to Beyond Earth's release over the past decade plus, either.
3: Well, I mean, they had like, the benefit of oh. Firaxis's name to go with it, so there's that. And there was
4: literally nothing before. Centauri were completely gone.
3: Yeah, but it was still it's a Fraxis game. Yeah, yeah. so expectations were higher. Whereas Endless Legend basically did not have that. It was totally new. Yeah, twice as many people right now playing Endless Legend than there are playing Beyond Earth. There you go.
0: And certainly part of that is the product, but then also the what do I expect from this title, given who is involved in its development and what they have done before, and also what they have promised to uh-huh. be realized. Because, man, it's like, you know, hey, we fixed this. We know you guys were really ticked off about this. Yeah, I was, but in the time that you were fixing things that I was ticked off about, I found this other bird left. So what you're saying now is you can now deliver to me what you said you could deliver six months ago, a year ago. Well, I'm playing this game that delivered on what they promised today, today. Better luck next time. I've only got so much time in the day. And even if I had more time in the day, I still wouldn't come back to you for this one. Ta-ta! You know, you've lost a customer, at least in the shorter, the shorter term. That's bad.
4: Yeah. Yeah, you do that enough times in a row, it will cost you, yes. Less is more. Okay.
0: This is our grand plan for the game. Right now, we're concerned about making this experience best it possibly can be. This is what you can expect. Ah, okay, I mean if it's one thing, it's man, I thought I was going to enjoy this, but it's not. It's crap, for me, not that it's crap, full stop,
1: yeah, that's why people have more patience with like the early access games and stuff. We know they're working on it. they didn't hmm. promise well, the entire thing at once.
0: <laughs> we're
3: hoping they're working on it,
1: oh, well, yes, depending <laughs> on which game we're talking about,
3: yeah, yeah, but still plenty of people who are like,
1: I bought this game, why doesn't it fully work right now?
3: It's early access, so what? <laughs> Yeah, Shut up, go (laughs) away.
4: Although, to be fair, some companies are starting to make it look like they're trading their actual (laughs) supposed finished release products as early access.
3: Yeah, there was too many people who have slipped in at the end of their development cycle and just called it early access and then stayed that way. And didn't quite technically leave beta, even though it's like five, six years later. Yeah. There is that. And then they can claim, oh, but we never said it was finished. But yes. Depends on the game too. Like Minecraft's handling of that, and RimWorld's
4: current handling of that is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, not everyone does it that way. <laughs> Minecraft is done. It's just that they just add more. Uh, well, no, I'm thinking about too. how they progress through alpha and beta. Because you could buy yeah. Minecraft while it was in alpha, and yep, while yeah. it it wasn't nearly the depth that you have available to it now, it was still pretty
3: solid on its own merits.
1: And And it was enough that people could start figuring out mods for it, which brought in more people, so...
3: Yeah. Well, it's a style of development thing. If you have the base of the game, and then you just add a piece at a time as you go and make sure each of those pieces work with the rest of the game, then yes, you can do that style. And that works. I mean, even Don't Starve has that. They did that that way. And a number of other games have gone that route, where you put out a base, and then you slowly add a piece at a time. And that's a better way of developing it if you're going for that style. But uh, bigger games, AAA games, quote-unquote, or games that aren't built like that, yeah, they tend to be a lot more messy and problematic. And, frankly, AAA games tend to have people who are old and don't like new styles of doing things. Yeah, it just seems kind of That's back why to indie front. Tend to be like, better.
4: it's anti-competitive behavior, which uh, you would expect at least some AAA publishers to adjust.
3: <laughs> the hell <laughs> so they no. not No, they're happy as long as they're still raking in the billions. <sighs>
4: That's true, but I feel like the positions of somebody like the COD people, the Call of Duty people, is different from something like Fraxis in terms of what you can get away with long term. Uh, just, just from a sheer numbers perspective,
3: and well, okay, Activision versus Two K, yes, Activision's way better—not better, but bigger. <laughs> yes, uh, they're also better. Yeah, at that's what I'll go. With, yeah. out. They're better at grinding down an IP till it's no longer worthwhile.
4: Yeah, better but at marketing too.
3: Well, they just throw more money at it. That's not better. That's just more money.
4: I don't know. I would say they're better at it because they they hawk an inferior product and get more people to purchase it. That, that, that to me, sounds like good marketing. (laughs) More so than a good game.
3: Eh, It's more brand recognition. Yeah. So marketing-ish.
4: And they have the the genre advantage
3: somewhat. I don't know. It'll take... point where like an indie grows up and becomes a big developer and slaughters a publisher before the big publishers stop and go okay maybe we should change how we're doing stuff
4: the only other thing i could picture happening is that one of the publishers makes that adaptation and starts running away Eh. like they get double or triple money and the other ones start looking at that
3: Uh, it depends the bigger ones tend to be public companies, so they can't really do it yeah, like true. they used to do. Because then the investors are like, okay, so how do we make money? Or what makes you money? Therefore, push that, push that, push that, push that. And like, But that doesn't sell us games, actually. Because <laughs> you're using the wrong metrics. you
0: Yada, yada, yada. Thank you, Slow, for your latest email into the show. Number eight from episode 281. Making Civilization VI an eSport in the long term is set up by examining its first such tournament. We first discussed Civilization VI becoming an official eSport last November in episode 269. From an announcement the month before from Team Liquid Pro, they described themselves as a quote-unquote professional eSports organization. They're based in the Netherlands. Civ 6 became only the second strategy title in its roster after StarCraft II and, of course, the first turn-based strategy game. Other titles include Halo, League of Legends, and Super Smash Brothers. Team Liquid has been around since 2001, originally as a noose website for StarCraft. Well, on the twenty fourth of February, in update and continuation. Team Liquid is incredibly excited to announce the inaugural Civilization Six esports challenge, a three versus three tournament which will take place and which did take place on the twenty fifth and twenty sixth of March, and featured a one thousand dollar prize pool. That was five hundred dollars for first, two hundred and fifty for second, one hundred and fifty for third, and a hundred dollars for fourth. And yes, that is American dollars, not Canadian dollars or Australian dollars or whatever else you might be thinking in terms of dollars. They also said that while we anxiously waited for Frax to fix team play, we partnered with two modders to design the next best thing, a balanced gameplay, I have to <gasps> pause here for, for on the quote for a second, balanced gameplay, okay, I'll continue to read, quote, and a mirror map ideal for esports competition. We even designed a spectator mode so we viewers could join in on the action, unquote, and you might be thinking, wait a minute, how are viewers joining in on the action? I'm actually going to wrap back around to that, because that was actually (laughs) true-ish. We'll come back to the ish. So again, this competition took place on the 25th and the 26th of March. All victory conditions were enabled. Maximum 100 turns. They had a dynamic turn timer. Mm -hmm. And the Aztecs, the Romans, the Scythians, and the Sumerians were quote-unquote banned for balance. Now, you may be wondering, why did they have a dynamic turn timer? Well, Mr. Game Theory, his real name is Steven uh, Tokowski. He's described as the team captain for Civilization VI at uh, Team Liquid Pro. Competitive Civilization community has a root in a turn limit, and a turn limit results in an additional layer of gameplay because the game will be called on score.
4: That's decent because it, it makes otherwise non viable moves potentially viable. And then it's the other side's job to punish. They're underselling military to gouge score. I think Team Liquid is doing their best. When I heard about the concept of Civ 6 as an esport, I kind of balked at it because the game is nowhere near in a state that would make it competitively viable. But Team oh, Liquid's doing their best here. <laughs> and you know what? Compared to Firaxis, I have a lot more faith in Team Liquid's capacity to balance. That's not saying I think very highly, but they are much more likely to be capable of it than Firaxis, especially because of their time with StarCraft 2.
0: Well, I was about to say, given the fact, the history, you know, this isn't their first foray into competitive esports, so they, they can take the lessons learned from other games and more likely to adapt them to a turn-based strategy game, as compared to 2K or Firaxis, which is never done anything like this.
4: In contrast to Firaxis, they've also been involved with a game where that knows what balance actually looks like. <laughs> Zing, But that's never really been the focus design of Civ. You know, that's not a no. goal of the typical civilization strategy game is to have all the Civs be balanced. It's not even close to the goal. That's like way down the priority list. So that's fair. But on the other hand, it's definitely not balanced or anywhere near. Not from a victory condition perspective, not from a Civ perspective, not from really any perspective you could look at is uh the Civ series balanced, and that's not unique to Civ Six. That's been true in every civilization game where after the Civ stopped being completely generic. Yeah. The Civ one and two, I mean, okay. That was reasonably balanced aside from start position. But not so much now.
0: My trailing off on the quote-unquote revelation from Mr. Game 3 that they're going to call the game based on score is more to do with how score is calculated, which is probably part of the reason why they did it, as opposed to why are you using score? But anyway, elsewise from the tournament, starting warriors and settlers stack on top of each other. I thought that this was interesting from a competitive perspective. I really hadn't given any consideration to this, and I read it, and I went, oh, okay, that makes sense. Quote, lots of players complained that the east side had an advantage over the west side because starting warriors always spawned on the left side, making it easier for the right side to get their warrior faster to the left side starting city.
6: Yep. Mm
4: -hmm. Warrior positioning is a big deal in PvP. Like, if you even just read some play-by-email reports of people playing against each other, somebody's warrior wandering around in your territory can be a problem because they can pillage you. You need substantial investment of resources to get rid of that, of your own units, when at a time where you want to be building settlers and builders to expand. So that's pretty bad on its own, but they can pillage you and they can actually take your builder and potentially delete it if they catch you out, which would be awful. That kind of stuff can easily cost you the game if uh, you take too much damage from that kind of harass.
0: In between your pillaging point and the taking your builder, they could just sit there on your hex and prevent you from ever improving that. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, is this your iron? Oh, yeah, no.
4: <laughs> yeah, if they're on a hill like between your current cities and the cities you want to settle, and they're fortified there, yeah, good luck getting rid of that. It's going to yeah. be really mm-hmm. difficult to dislodge that.
6: They'll heal the as forest, fast as you damage them. So, yeah
0: elsewise rivers disabled quote rivers provide great fresh water to cities but unfortunately we were not able to mirror rivers properly and as a result some teams may receive superior land with rivers enabled unquote
2: hmm.
4: i can't mirror rivers
0: well
4: if you can't then i guess you have to scratch them but man okay
0: it feels a little bit like a slippery slope. <laughs> slippery slope.
4: If it's a doctored map, which it kind of has to be to be competitive. Yeah. Because again, the, the spawns are not designed to be balanced <laughs> at all. <laughs> so they could just toss in lakes here and there for fresh water. It'd be like, here's an oasis on this city site, Here's an oasis on that city site. You can, you can do
6: stuff like that.
1: Got a few one tile lakes around.
6: Yeah. But, but this pushes Egypt out of the top tier oh no (laughs) they will no longer get their river synergy
4: you you can just pretend they're they're banned for balance
0: (laughs) Mm, excluded for balance
4: (laughs) functionally banned (laughs) they are functionally banned functionally banned
0: speaking also of balance all unique buildings will receive the same corresponding upgrades as their standard counterpart so no unique buildings okay (laughs) fair enough and they also wrap the map so that players can better engage in naval warfare. Mm. Trading gold per turn and trading cities to teammates will equal instant disqualification.
4: Fair, fair. I always hated that. And that's been a problem since at least War, maybe earlier. If you're playing in like a competitive setting and somebody's losing, they can just rage quit, give their cities to someone who wasn't involved in the war. And I've seen write-ups of competitive games where players do that and somehow people are okay with it. It was like the people benefiting, not having to spend any resources. It's supposed to be a free for all, and someone's yeah. just getting three plus cities for free. Like to me, that's bannable, and someone who accepts the cities has violated a non-aggression pact.
6: Like, yeah, I, I, I don't care. It's a act of war, if yeah. effectively.
4: Yeah, and I've seen people respecting naps with so people who took cities from their war target. And I'm just like, F that noise. If someone's doing that, I'm nap stabbing them. And I thumb my nose and have expletives for anybody who considers that a nap stab. If they're going to cheese like that, I mean, what the hell?
6: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) what they've done is they've pre-conquered your cities. Yeah, that was your city. They took
4: pretty much. It's different if they declare and take it themselves. That's different. Okay, fine. But that's not what's going on here. So yeah, I am perfectly fine. In fact, I applaud that they've set that role because that role needed to be there in any competitive format.
0: Absolutely I mean you could say, oh well no if they if they go ahead and they trade the cities to teammates then uh you know that's just you know just an instant declaration of war well no, you need to be instantly disqualified because <laughs> it's like, hey guess what I've got this city and uh look at that you know you were attacking it and stuff like that and you know your units were right there not only have we pushed you away but uh you know we're back up to full strength and stuff so screw you
6: yeah didn't they change that that cities no longer get full strength when they're transferred.
0: Given when they were playing this game
6: right, 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 right.
0: back in March, I, that would have been also been an issue at that time. But yes, it's important to note that the defense thing has been addressed just in the quote-unquote general game. And, uh, oh, no duplicate leaders permitted on the same team. I thought, okay.
1: Trust you me. You can't all be
6: Monty. Not, not
0: this game. You, you can trade off on who's Monty if you want to keep playing with the same teammates from game to game.
6: Team full Monty. <laughs> there you go.
0: <laughs> we are working on leader-specific balance changes and we'll eventually have a select roster of leaders ideal for competitive Civ 6. Oh, I'm pretty sure people already have their roster, but anyway. Uh, we are also attempting to change the victory condition mechanics to be more in tune with esports. The goal is to create a game where all victory conditions will be viable in a 30 to 60 minute session. And I must admit, my brain went... Civilization Revolution? Wait, but no? Okay.
4: <laughs> Is that actually true in SimRap? I've never played it. Sixty minute session? What?
0: Actually sixty minutes oh. actually seems long for a game in Civilization Revolution to be honest.
4: <laughs> well if you're running on online speed and you have a hundred turn cap, I can see that, that <laughs> I I can see that only taking an hour. Yeah. Uh, quite possibly but- less if someone successfully harasses or rushes out. Or Fails or Rush, either, either of those would end <laughs> the game pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's very true.
0: <laughs> you're all in or you're all out. And then on the 27th of March, the winner was announced Damage Incorporated, although the other top places went to Civilization Player League's r- representatives. Quote, even though the weekend was dominated by general stacking, quote-unquote, and connectivity issues, the experience provided us with valuable knowledge that will allow us to improve competitive gameplay at the highest level, unquote.
4: Everyone here knows what general stacking is, right? And by everyone, I mean our listening audience as well. So the way that works, that you basically rush out a couple of great generals as quickly as possible, probably building projects for it. It would not surprise me if they did that. Mm -hmm. If you get two generals from the same era or maybe one from an earlier era, one from the next era, so you you have overlapping. Say you have uh, two generals, one's classical medieval, one's medieval renaissance. They will both apply their bonuses to the medieval units so your medieval units will get plus 10 strength from great generals and plus two movement points per turn from great generals. so you would have just for example if you got this bonus on a swordsman or you could get like a legion with uh 50 strength and four moves super early in the game and that's before promotions stronger than a knight equally fast classical era and uh without the knight's weaknesses and obviously cities trying to defend against this are helpless uh, with the battering ram. But that is also capable of either one-shotting or very close to one-shotting just about any stock unit trainable in the classical era on top of that because it's a unique unit doing it. Now, Rome was banned, but you get the idea. The yeah. stack If you have oligarchy on this and you're stacking all these bonuses together, there's almost no counterplay to it. And even going up to a future era does not make up the difference because of the double general. And so it does not surprise me that the competition got dominated by people just rushing those out, especially because in getting those generals, you are denying them to your enemy. Mm -hmm. So your enemy does not have them, and you do. It's just an unwinnable scenario for the defender.
0: (laughs) Hence the higher cost for great generals to come in future tournaments. (laughs) Yeah.
4: But for now, like if you're playing somebody in the vanilla game, and you see someone investing in an encampment that you think can attack you in the near future, you'd best be getting at least a great general of your own, because not only will it deny your enemy a second great general, but it'll give you a chance to survive.
6: Yeah.
3: Some great generals are just better to pick up than others.
4: That's true. If you let someone double GG you, you're dead. You're not going to live that.
3: Yeah. If somebody pulls a bombard in the uh, classical or medieval era, (laughs) you're in trouble.
0: I mentioned earlier about their comment with regards to designed a spectator mode so we viewers can join in on the action. Follow up from that in the post-tournament report. Quote, our next tournament will feature a longer stream delay to help offset stream sniping. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, I picked up on that. Also, fun user interface pop-ups. (laughs) To elaborate on game features and strategies, a dedicated team of commentators and broadcasters, Uh, eSports-style team graphics and highlights, and player profiles.
6: Does anybody know someone like that?
0: What, people who can commentate and broadcast their voice? No, I don't know anybody like that, I'm afraid. Uh. I guess we're out of luck there.
4: It's interesting to watch how much better it has gotten from the, the start of the StarCraft II release to now, in terms of the quality of the broadcasts. It's not like they were awful at first, but they're much closer to, like, true professional now.
0: I think that also describes Polycast, Phil. Thank you. It's very nice of you. Phil,
4: oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're all pros here.
1: True.
0: <laughs> I hear the giant air quotes. <laughs> Cheaper wonders, lower trader costs, three starting trade routes instead of one, lower building costs, increased yields from chopping forests and rainforests,
1: oh.
0: victory condition diversity. Science, culture, and religious victories will become far more plausible. <laughs> they said that it will become far more plausible doesn't mean that they will, in fact, be plausible.
4: Yes. Science victory in 100 turns. I will yeah. do it.
0: Go, go, go. Well, on
4: online speed, maybe. I don't know.
0: Well, unless they change what a science victory is, like X number of beakers a turn. Uh,
4: that's true. That's true. <laughs> like, if you research a certain technology before the, in time, then you win.
0: And uh, improvements to spectator options such as full resource reveal. Well, you might want to have a really long stream delay or something, but... Uh,
4: Maybe okay, like yeah. a one hour stream delay? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. If you do that, then the game's over. It doesn't matter. You say whatever you want. That's interesting, though, because, like, it's harder to stream snipe in a game like StarCraft 2, where if you're on a minute delay...
0: My gosh. Any
4: information that the streamers could provide to your opponent would be... Outdated. Very dated. Ugh. Your opponent could have transitioned by then already, or you've probably already scouted that or you're dead. <laughs> so i imagine that wasn't really high on their thoughts uh, when they started doing streaming of a turn-based game where even like 10 minutes you could still potentially give somebody his full information <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: the concluding sentence from mr game theory we wish for access the best of luck with bringing multiplayer civilization to at least a somewhat respectable level of online play while we play other games than lobby simulator 2017 unquote <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well you know if we can have goat simulator we can certainly have lobby simulator i tell you what yeah let's green light that right now
4: probably a little too early to try and make this an e <laughs> yeah and uh, more power to them if they want to mod the game to make it closer and yeah, you know, the yeah developers I- might be able to see some of that as uh decent so we'll, we'll see how it goes
3: uh, i think once the dll mods come out then stuff like this might be more appropriate they'll be able to do more tune the game more for high speed action
0: number seven from episode 276 having artificial intelligence controlled civs and only ai such controlled civs battle it out extends from civilization 5 and beyond civ battle royale i don't know there might be somebody on our panel this week that might know something about it i i I don't know (laughs) Quote, massive artificial intelligence showdown which takes place in Civilization V with one goal in mind. Complete and total world domination. Hunger Games-like tournament taking place on a realistic Earth map with every civilization placed truly where their capital stood. Every single city flip, struggle for power, and smart move is then recorded, narrated through text, and uploaded either weekly or bi-weekly for all to witness, comment, and even produce amazing original content for. That's right. So Mm -hmm. we're talking about in the Reddit here, not only was like Civ Battle Royale become a Civ subreddit air quotes in a way there are also Civ Battle Royale subreddits which no doubt will beget their own subreddits which will beget and this is an excuse for me to use that term you're currently on the third iteration and by saying you are currently on the third iteration I'm referring of course to uh, T-Pangol Jet here so w- what is exactly your connection to Civ Battle Royale anyway why are we talking about this?
7: I had been uh, for quite a while been a member of this modding community and I wanted to show off what the modding community could do There was one or two AI games that had preceded the Battle Royale, and they were quite popular. But I thought this style of AI game where everyone starts in a true location, because if you look at these previous ones, what they did was they had just the base game, 43 civilizations. And uh, it was a clusterfuck, just to put it cleanly. So what I decided to do was, okay, how can we balance out the map and how we can also get the community involved in which they can also help balance out the map and choose the civs and choose the leaders and choose everything. And just, yeah, put everything into an AI world and get people to follow along and document um, and, yeah, really recall this entire story.
0: First off, if that was your clean description of what was wrong with the previous AI-only games, I can only imagine what the dirty details are. But what exactly were you trying to accomplish with the Battle Royale that the previous AI-only games, so where people were playing Civilization V and everything was being controlled by an AI, what were you trying to address with the Battle Royale? What was
7: wrong? That's a really good question. I was trying to address the fact that within the uh, modding community, there's always been barriers essentially because of the way that Firaxis has operated historically. We've always felt very sort of isolated, off in our own little niche corner of the internet. You have this game in which, you know, it's been the top ten most played game on Steam for the past ten years or so, and there's a, such a small community that mods, and there is such an extensive history of Civ5 mods. So I started to uh, moderate the Civ subreddit. Pretty much explicitly to help them out in terms of community stuff and to showcase and do more Civs of the Week, but also with the ulterior motive of showing off mods. I thought that this was basically a perfect way to showcase what the modding community can do, but also see what we can do just to um, also create an entire community that surrounds it. The crazy thing about the Battle Royale isn't just the game itself and the stories that come out of it, it's just how the community reacts to those stories. We have a rotating list of narrators in which they all provide their own analysis about on what's happening. And the fact that there's just so many different people contributing so many different things, it really just boosts the Battle Royale to the point where we got a Guinness World Record because it just snowballed and spiraled out of control to the point where everyone was producing content and so many people were enjoying so many different things. There were newspapers and stock exchanges and rap battles and just there's an official novel version of it. Everybody sees something completely different in it. It's one of those things that have such a broad appeal that it brings in so many different types of people. The entire climate of the Battle Royale I find just interesting from a sociological perspective because there's so much trash talking on the internet. This community's almost served as a respite from that because... All the trash talking was done, was done because they support a particular civilization, they were trash talking everybody else. So this entire project was kind of like everybody on the community was on the same page. There was just so much goodwill and it just completely spiraled to the point where I now have way too many resources to work with to create something that is just ridiculous done the first one that crashed up to like 19 parts or something we got up like to turn 300 and it crashed and the second one got up to 800 before i started to work on the mark 3 and then there was like database areas that restricted me to do stuff with the mark 2 but yeah this entire new mark 3 one is really interesting but it also means that because we've developed so much new content and new mods and new uh technology for it we can basically put that and use that technology as a defibrillator to uh revive the mark 2 and make it way more stable 61 civilizations down to 41 so the game is almost drawing to a conclusion but it's been a wild ride along the way i think what we're trying to do at this point is just develop a system in which we have a quota because you can take you can take uh, twitch clips now and all combat animations are going to be on we can just get these people who are watching the stars stream live and whenever they're online they can just say okay let's just take a picture here Um, we'll we'll just take a, a clip of this here we can write it down Have a certain number of those, then we stop streaming and then we start to produce the video content for that or like image content or image albums or however people want to do it. So you can either kind of, you know, join it live or you can show our curated content afterwards.
0: So actually going through with the AI's competing against each other and then saying this is what happened in that particular turn or over those sets of turns that's really kind of just the beginning of what the content of the battle royale has turned into because you've already kind of gotten to what other people are contributing to the battle royale even if they say Mm -hmm. you know well i'm not going to be able to sit there and run through the game myself like able to, to process a turn so what could other people do what are people
6: doing
7: because it was a solo project for the past couple of years, I realized that if this needs to have any sort of semblance of stability, then I need to completely rework how everything works and just get like the top contributors in the community and see if we can form something of a team. System that we have now, web developers, we have people focused on streaming, we have people focused on video content production and voice actors. It's really hard to tell people what to do because I've never specifically asked the community to generate their own content all we do is just kind of have our eye on the prize and just deliver something that's extremely decent with sincerity and goodwill, then content will just naturally come out of the woodwork and then we can incorporate that into whatever things that we do because every time we released an image album, we would include unique art that people had included or charts or statistics or all these different things related to power rankings or custom-made maps. It's great.
0: You never asked for that to begin with, but it sounds like you're... Encouraging it because you will take then what somebody has done and then kind of incorporate Absolutely. it into an official mm. stream. Have you ever had to stem somebody like saying, like, thanks, we get what you're trying to do here, but we'd rather you not do this because reason X?
7: Not really. I mean, the community, for the most part, actually manages itself. If you look at the Better Battle Royale, we've actually never had a, a list of rules on the side Everything is so almost democratic in a way. I don't know. Everybody produces their own content. And some people will tell people if they don't like it, but most people don't. And most people encourage people who have ideas. I have given parts over to narrators and then they have returned with some very interesting commentary. And some people have complained about that and some people complain about the swearing and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it happens every now and again. I guess just
0: well, the fact that you've got people complaining versus reflective of that people are not only consuming the content but they're also thinking about the content and wanting to give you feedback for that. I mean, getting complaints knows that you've made it. Like you're, you're, oh yeah, no, absolutely, it's having an impact
7: can respond directly to them, but um, obviously doesn't really fix a lot of stuff. I just try to look at people's complaints and incorporate them into the content going forward so that they don't have a reason to complain going forward. Or if they do, then I can keep on incorporating. And the reason that the Battle Royale has kept on trudging on is just because I look at exactly what the community kind of wants and then subtly and slyly incorporate it into what happens so that the entire sort of product is end up boosted. And you look at something and from the outside, it just looks like literally just an AI game and you can't understand why people are en- enjoying it, it's basically, yeah, the community that surrounds it that lifts up the product that makes it look as awesome as the actual game itself. If there's more people following something, it adds legitimacy, and other people kind of want to peer in and go, okay, why is this legitimate? What are you doing to make it legitimate? So, uh, yeah, no, that's, it's fun. It's very fun. It's really nice to get all those shout-outs from the devs and all that sort of stuff, and hopefully, yeah, being able to... Um, influence a lot of things about the dev cycle in terms of true start location and uh, them focusing more on AI games, including that as like base functionality. It's, it's a win for us. It's it's nice.
0: I was going to ask about the connection back to the base game and 2K and for access because some people might be listening to this saying, well, that's nice. You're off in the corner of the community doing that for Civ, but I don't really see how that's going to have an impact on the game that I'm playing, which is the mm-hmm. release version. And I think a lot of people who might not have been aware of necessarily the Battle Royale or any of the AI games that came before. Think of it was a Fraxicon 2015 when Ed Beach and other Fraxians said, you know, we actually go through AI simulations to try Mm. to get a sense of where things are going. And I think based on what you've described, that there is some similarity to what you're doing with the Battle Royale, but you're going beyond that, including, I understand, in the Mach 3 that you've got now a community patch.
6: AI that's being incorporated along along
0: with the mods, so it's not just bringing mods that bring in civilizations that then the existing game mechanics, but you're actually changing the game mechanics as well, which I guess someone could then also say, well, if you're changing all of these things, then how does that really relate to the base game? And for people listening to Polycast, they might be saying, Dan, why are we talking about this in this extent? Shouldn't this conversation really be on Modcast?
7: Uh, that's That's a very interesting point to bring out. Ooh.
0: It's no different than somebody doing total conversion mods.
3: Yeah, yeah. so
7: basically... um, You you can't really really
3: complain about modifying the game.
7: In anything that we do try to change the game, what we're trying to do is not just totally convert it to the point where it's unrecognizable, but also boost the image of Civ as a game overall. We've included so much tech in Mark III that is completely new it's almost like we're developing enough content to add a have a new expansion and an expansion isn't necessarily a total conversion it just adds a lot more content that is inclusive of all the previous content and doesn't overshadow it but it also brings everything up at the same time so Yeah, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of just minor touches and bells and whistles and things that put over here and put things that put over there. There's an entire sort of political in-game system based on a mod called Rise to Power in which each Civ gets their own like uh, political parties inside of them. And uh, based on your decisions and the type of government that you choose, you have different types of political parties uh, and you have different types of political figures inside of your things. And then, yeah, it's just a lot of information a lot of new tech for example we have ticker text down the bottom of just like in-game events that's already happening we've expanded the processing tones uh, ai thing in which you can just see all the statistics of what people are researching what people are doing at any one particular point of time so yeah we've just really kind of gone all out to see what we can get away with with the resources that we have because mark one was just me just doing stuff by myself. And then Mark 2 was just me doing stuff by myself. But at that point of time, there were more mods in the community that I could incorporate. But at this point, now that I can actually actively ask for new modifications and new things, we are really going all out.
0: I don't know about other people listening to your explanation, Jed, but you had me at statistics.
7: <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, know the statistics is a really interesting part of it because alongside the people are doing like yeah newspapers and they're writing stories and stuff like that yeah that's fine that's cool but there's an entire side of the community that absolutely loves I I like analysis we've managed to tell the game to export a whole bunch of data to a particular spreadsheet and then that spreadsheet's going to be made publicly available but also twitch users can just request information whenever they want about specific things about who's winning about how much gold this particular sieve has and what their ranking is in the world relative to other people. So there's just so much stuff that we've done that we've been able to do just because we've kind of been able to put our heads down and go, okay, what can we do if we're working together instead of just me by myself?
3: The only other question is when's Civ Six Battle Royale coming out?
7: Ah! Yeah, um, Frexas had actually contacted me about that at some point, and they actually did their own Battle Royale and used the Battle Royale name. To be fair, they did credit um, me personally for coming up with the name, even though I didn't really come up with it, but... They're using the name oh. because the other battle royale was popular. But when is the Civ 6 battle royale? When there's more mods out there, the the modding community needs to be something for the battle royale to be anything. If there's more of a diversity in terms of um, civilizations that can be put on a map, and you know, if there are AI improvements and just a lot of different visual changes, the tiny little things that really make the game interesting then yeah, it, it can work. But there needs to be more mods and more civilizations out there and a more balanced approach to how we actually look at the in-game world and make sure that everybody is on an equal playing field. That's the optimal goal. So, never. When? No, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> so that's the thing. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in, uh, uh, from the perspective that naturally mods are going to develop over the next couple of years, and naturally the game's going to get better in the next couple of years. Civ is always an investment, I guess. Yeah. Not a lot of people actually know it, but a lot of people who are longtime fans of the series will buy it knowing full well that it's going to be a bit crappy at first. But because we can, you know, we actually trust developers to listen to feedback and incorporate it and just improve it over time. If you look at Brave New World compared to Civ 5 release, and if you look at Civ 6's release compared to the Civ 5 release, we're so far ahead of where Civ Five was when it was released. So I'm oh, not really works. concerned about, yeah, no, I'm yeah, I'm, like... I'm not, I'm not concerned about mods and uh, balance things at this game because uh, inside of the game at the moment, because just, we can complain at this point, but that's the best thing that we can do because if we do complain, then things can't get changed. But over time, yeah, it's just going to get better.
0: You know, I, I was tempted to ask you if you've been approached about, you know, having a battle royale for civilization beyond earth, but I'm not going to put you on. The yeah,
7: I, I have. Oh yeah. I had. Yeah.
0: What was the response to that
5: request?
7: Um, what I wanted to do was a bit more resource intensive than what they had planned. It required a lot more research into how to create a Battle Royale, because about creating an AI game, anybody can create an AI game, but how to actually create something that people can actually connect to is something that is extraordinarily different. So um, I was suggesting maybe you actually design a world map inside of Beyond Earth, of, the, of Earth, and then um, place them just like based on like the map that the uh, Faraxis had come up with of where the Beyond Earth sieves kind of vaguely looked, but can't do that because there was no world builder for Beyond Earth, which was uh, yeah, it's a bit of a shame. But that would have been cool if that could happen. You can still use the uh, Civ Five world builder. Yeah, and then transport it over. But the thing is, it's just I was already so busy focused on other things. But yeah, I'm I'm very open to working with Faraxis in the future regarding a battle royale.
0: I was kind of looking forward to your trying to explain true start locations for, you know, civilization beyond Earth. But anyway. uh... (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is the Civ uh, Battle Royale. You can check that out over on the Reddit. I don't suppose there's there's not like an official website for the Battle Royale, is there?
7: There's going to be BattleRoyale.tv in the future. There's there's so much information absolutely everywhere. It's it's not unified pretty much anywhere because it's just if you're running a solo project, it's really hard to document absolutely everything. But um, now that we do have an organizational structure, there's just finding information on the Battle Royale won't be difficult in the future. But as of now, yeah, just uh, stay tuned and try to look out, because when we go to release, we're going to release. You'll hear about it. You'll know about it.
0: Number six from episode 290. Addressing mid to late game drag in Civ Six extends to the series in general going forward.
4: Mid to end game bland by getting fat on CFC here. Wow. Uh, that's That is literally the handle. And apparently a lot of a handle. Like, what <laughs> do you want me to say? <laughs> wow. wow. This isn't one of those ones where I'm mispronouncing it. I I think Damn. it's pretty obvious. <laughs> Anyway, the gist of this thread is maybe to bring stuff, corporations, ideology, pressure, culture, flip, all that kind of thing back into the game. He feels that there's not a lot going on in the end game. But I'm not uh-huh. sure that this is a uh, fixable problem in practice in Civ, unless you drastically alter the design and model of the Civ game in general or the Civ series in general. Because like the first response post here by Art and Morty. The point comes too soon where it feels like only large-scale war is going to change anything about how the mid-end game is going to play out. That has been true in every Civilization game that I've ever touched. (laughs) Someone starts to get in front, and unless you put them down, they're going to win in every game.
8: It's been that way since Civ 1.
4: Yep. My problem with this is that the time between when this starts and when this ends is too long. In IRL terms, in per-turn turns, however you want to measure it. Someone's running away, and that someone's going to win. And there's way too much time between when that's true and when Hmm. that someone wins.
0: Uh, also in the thread came up with comparisons to previous civilization titles and then yes generally a consensus is that this is a civilization issue full stop and some people started to make the argument that well it is worse in Civ 6 than it was in say Quantity X and one of those individuals is KAU who said I think it was a bit better in Civ 5 for a couple of reasons and by a bit better I think he means it was not as bland not that it was more bland based on the subject title, he said, I could play tall, which meant I didn't have to spend 90% of my time making mundane decisions about Mm. production cues. And there were some new elements introduced in the late game, most relatedly to the World Congress, ideology, and cooperative projects. Okay, cooperative projects, those were a kind of a neat little thing that you could do. Oh, Mm. let's have the international games, for example. But that wasn't make or break. That gave you such a competitive advantage that... You won because of that. It certainly wouldn't hurt you, but I don't feel that's going to help with mid-to-late-game drag. Although I wouldn't mind seeing that back again. World Congress itself? Idea is fine, but implementation? I Dear me. Uh, <laughs>
4: <laughs> but ideologies, too. Like,
0: yes. There's not
4: a lot of depth there. It was contrived diplomatic conflict. In other words, real players wouldn't give a crap what ideology you picked unless you picked something too strong or weak or whatever. And the AIs cared about that instead of actually victory conditions.
0: We have been friends for 100 turns, or whatever it happens to be. Oh, you're a different ideology than I am. I hate you. Yeah. You hate my choice, but suddenly we're we're not friends anymore? What do you mean you're declaring war on me? Wait, what? <laughs> I'm like a couple of eras ahead of you. That's That was probably to your benefit. Okay, I'm just going to turn around and squash you. Yeah, they prioritize ideology too much to their own detriment, so... That was a major problem, as you say, Phil. It was egregious in that respect, and in a multiplayer situation, eh?
4: Yeah, no one cared. Aside from the fact that if someone got to ideologies much before you and were getting those bonuses, that's a major red flag. But (laughs) the ideology choice itself, not really. And no, the answer to mundane clicks is not to force quote-unquote tall flight. The answer to mundane clicks is to bring the UI up from 20 years ago and make it a functional UI. And then they (laughs) won't have nearly as many mundane clicks.
9: I agree. I think that one of the things that comes up again with this situation, whether you're playing single or multiplayer, and it would be nice if this was designed to work in both right so maybe if you pick an ideology you're there's just some stuff you can't do with other civilizations anymore like diplomacy wise you know that you're just very restricted maybe that could be of interest now obviously the diplomacy system is not really there yet but maybe if there was a lot of stuff that was suddenly limited when you picked a different ideology that could be of uh, of some interest maybe the war penalties for declaring war on a different ideology are higher on hmm. the same you know
4: You'd have to rework Wormonger penalties, but it's a good idea in concept because you want stuff that players who are actual players, you know, human beings interacting with each other would actually use. You are picking ideologies that constrain you in some ways, which give you big bonuses in other ways. That could be a good mechanic depending on how it's implemented. Yeah. And it would certainly be better than what we had in so five ideologies if we just you get some bonuses and uh, people randomly don't like you, but only if they're AI. Yeah. And it feels
9: so arbitrary. You know, like I don't like that feeling of arbitrary conflict, right? Just like yeah. in Beyond Earth, it's like, oh, I hate you more and more and more. And like, okay, cool. Like, <laughs> what do you want from me? <laughs> it doesn't feel real. <laughs> wow. Well. You have victory right. conditions
4: in the game, which is a separation from reality already. However, yeah. if you're going to include them in the game, then the player should be making decisions based on their existence. Because otherwise, they're not playing the same game. They're just exactly. Live. Yeah,
0: yeah. Just saying rightly points out in the chat that, yes, it's the nature of a 4X game like Civ. Since your first turns is always going to be of more value than your second turn because Sif has that snowball effect. So an action in turns 1 to 10 is much more powerful than 100 to 110. Yes, because of the time that you're going to then to be able to build on that, the kind of risk-reward. But at the same time, you don't want it to be such that there is no value or the value is random number generator you either are all in. And you blow it out of proportion how worthwhile it is. It's like, okay, everything I did up to the mid to late game doesn't seem to matter anymore because now I'm the only person on this planet with this ideology in Civilization V. Or, that's nice, but I'm just going to continue doing what it is that I already did and it has absolutely no impact whatsoever, again, on what what it is that I'm currently progressing towards. We need somewhere in the middle. The extremes are easy. Civ has done that many times. I need to find that middle ground. And for right now, of course, within the Civilization Six context.
9: I think that when you think about this whole like issue about like, oh, it's getting boring, you know, it's getting bland. That's the symptom, right? The main issue, right, is that you can't really get to the end of the game. I mean, you just don't think you're going to win, right, once you're behind. But I think that the more important thing is to have fun, right? Like if you were having a good time, even if you were losing, that'd be fine. But you're like bored and you're losing. If you can manage to make it interesting, regardless of whether you're winning or not, I think that that might solve this problem to a decent degree. Like, you're probably not going to win, but if the game's still entertaining, you're not going to care that much, are you? You I know? I think the so. game
4: needs to be entertaining either way. Good yeah. example is there are plenty of times in Civ 4 or Civ 5 or even Civ 6, although I just win military now, but like I would be going for culture in Civ 4. And I would have set up the AI to the point where I knew I could not be declared on. In other words, I was guaranteed to win. But mm-hmm. that was so dull. You just hit end turn, hit end turn, end turn, yeah. and wait. Mm. You have a counter on the screen. You're like, hey, I know for a fact, like I can calculate it down to the turn. I'm going to win forty five turns from now.
9: Yeah, that's that's Yay. that's bad. I mean,
4: and yeah, okay. I'm not I'm not my, I'm not going to lose. I know I'm not gonna lose, but that's <laughs> I mean,
0: the novelty factor wears off pretty quickly on that number two. <laughs> Civilization is supposed to be about replayability. So if you know that I'm going to set this up and I'm always going to win, and as you said, you calculated it down to the exact turn, that sounds nice if you're trying to, I don't know, reproduce something historically accurate, for example. But when you're trying to get immersed in something and feel like that you are challenged, that perhaps the AI recognizes, hey, I see what you're doing, or at the very least... They then decide, like, oh, you're playing against this civilization this time, or this civilization is your neighbor, and they take this action that's different, then there's actually a chance that you might not be able to replicate what you have done, or could have done, dozens and dozens of times over, which leads you to quitting the game before you ever get anywhere near a victory condition, which also comes up in the thread as Civilization VI, I quit games more quickly than I did in previous Civilization games. I don't care about the victory conditions, and that's because of this lull in the mid-to-late game. Start a new game.
8: And I think part of that is, I think we've already touched on it, that the culture victory is a bit nebulous. We'll use that word. There isn't really a diplomacy victory. You've got religious, but that's probably going to happen early, if anything. So at the end, it's really science or military. And so you're probably just going to beeline into one of those. And that's not going to be interesting if you're doing that every game.
4: The science is military because like you can end the game with nukes if you get them before other people. Mm. There's no need for a ship.
9: Well, that's a own problem.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you are very quickly again at a point where you know you're going to win. There's no opposition there. It is just going through the motions at that point. The decisions aren't meaningful anymore because basically as long as you don't throw, you, you won.
9: One thing too that's hard is implementing other people having a chance without making it a catch-up mechanic, right? Yes. Yeah. Maybe in the late game if you can screw up harder, it's not going to feel like oh, somebody caught up to you. The bigger mistakes that you can make. I was also thinking <laughs> like maybe every era can have its own thing that makes it different. I think that that would help to keep it interesting.
8: Like you just say, you don't want catch-up mechanics, but if they're implemented correctly, you know, that could actually be one way of doing that. In Civ 5, there were a couple of World Congress things that gave a leg up to those who were a little behind. But, you know, if you formulated it properly, you know, that rubber banding mechanic, it works in other games. It could work here, too.
4: It's worked in Civ before. Civ have also yeah. had spies, and Civ 4 had spies. And in both of those cases, espionage was a way you could cover ground in science at an abnormal rate relative to your mm. Empire's capabilities. Especially if you did it correctly. It's not bad, as long as it's not ridiculous.
9: Yeah, you could also slow down how hard people could snowball, I guess, but that might make the game boring. Just I mean, maybe not.
4: It doesn't matter how hard they snowball if the game ends pretty quickly after they do. That's like, like something like the old warlords games did if you were winning by enough the AI would just be like okay nobody's gonna stop you now so if you want you can just win <laughs> like, <laughs> you have like over half of the like, cities I, I forget the exact trigger for it but basically like if you'll stop slaughtering us you can win the game <laughs> and that that's the closest thing you're going to get to a real Diplo win in this game because that's how you win quote unquote diplomatically in multiplayer everyone realizes that they can't stop you anymore even if they all dogpile you so they they just call the game a win for you that's a diplo win in my mind an actual diplo win yeah it's already happening in spirit people are quitting games because they know that the game's over for one way or another either they are going to win or they are certainly not going to win but it's going to be another four hours before that happens like come on (laughs)
9: I think it's a mix of both, though. I think it's because they they're not going to win and because they're bored. Like, if you were having fun, like I don't think you'd care that much. Well, that's true, but truly a big it. part
4: of the fun in this game is making meaningful choices as you're going through the game. And the combination of UI slugfest and knowing that no matter what choices <laughs> you make at this point, you're not going to win or you are going to win, really put a hamper on your chances of having fun.
1: This is in the multiplayer game all the time because we get to a point where we're not technically we haven't won, but between the three of us as human players, even if there's just like three of us in one runaway eye, we know that we can dogpile it eventually, but we don't want to spend another three hours doing that when we could start a new game. Mm. Yep.
0: When it comes to victory conditions, there should be a way, depending upon how you're playing it, to accelerate getting to that victory condition because there's always the option of course like well after I get the victory condition gee that victory condition came too soon I want to keep playing well you can of course still do that although I remember in the original Civilization you could not thank you for having save games and I could go back and just leave this <laughs> 1A by itself with one city but when it's a 4X game this awful and I say awful balance it's, it's awful because it's difficult to find but it's also very intriguing because it sparks a lot of good conversation when you're exploring expanding exploiting and exterminating At some point yes, there's someone that's going to be running away. So the victory conditions should be able to recognize that. Drew Sane talked about how, say, in Civilization Four, right, the domination, victory, yet a combination of territory, as I pointed out, also world population. That was a considerable help because, more often than not, we would have games that achieved a formal victory before we said, can we just call this and say so-and-so, air quotes, won. Not to say that you can't have your own individual victory conditions, but the game should be recognizing and taking into account however that works out. This person is a runaway. This person is going to win while at the same time not having the runaway happen so fast that it doesn't give somebody who maybe made a mistake on turn 20... To try to correct that or to have a little bit of a course correction on turn 60 so they have a chance to be competitive once again without saying, oh, well, so now you're going to penalize the person or players that were doing what they were supposed to be doing in the first 50 turns of the games. And now you know, you're kind of bringing them down because you're trying to bring the other person up artificially. There's got to be that balance in there so that ultimately we get to, there's a victory condition within a reasonable amount of time that you are not bored, at least for an extended period of time, that it's not bland, that you had interesting choices, and I want to play this again because I can make a series of different choices and I could change the outcome of the game. I think it's a lot easier to say than to actually do, but I think there's been enough in Civ history that perhaps sometimes when it comes to that third old, third new, third modified rule that they've been working on at Firaxis and Civilization titles and Civilization III, that perhaps they take away or they modify things that didn't need to be taken away or modified, where they're trying to add and change other things. Because I think if you take little bits from what Civ Four had and Civ Five and Civ Six had, you could have this victory condition that was meaningful and satisfying.
9: Yeah, I agree. And maybe they could propose some victory conditions that are like early, potentially victory conditions, right? Ones that, like you said, like adjust to what's going on and kind of call it early. That would be nice, like as an option. Yeah, put, put that in you the don't game. have
4: to accept the victory condition
9: as the winner. Yeah, like, or, or you can just like take it right before you make the games. Like, I want these conditions. Oh, yeah. Variable, when or whatever you want to call them. That way, you at least have the option of saying, like, I don't want to play till the end of the game. Like, I don't care if then it's not epic or whatever. I just want to close it out when I know I'm going to win. Yeah.
0: I don't have a problem if the game is going 250, 300 turns. If everyone is so close, neck and neck, half a dozen turns or a single turn could make a difference. That's interesting. That's exciting. That's like it's the bottom yeah. of the ninth and it's four four right now. That's interesting. But get to the bottom of the ninth and okay, so it's you know 21 to two. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's possible you're going to be able to roll that over into the 10th inning, but uh, A, how likely is that? And that's a lot of effort. How much fun is that?
9: Exactly. There's a lot they could do, as I think we can all agree on, (laughs) on multiple fronts, whether it's better victories or more interesting gameplay later on. There's a lot that can be done.
0: If I feel like I have to restart a game before a victory condition is achieved, I want to be blaming myself more Mm. than the game itself, because then it's, okay, either I need to change what it is that I'm doing, I'm just going to keep doing what it is that I'm doing and get used to it, as opposed to, man, there was nothing else I could have done because the mechanics screwed me over. Yeah, yeah. Either that or the mechanics screwed me over because I don't understand it as well as I should. Oh, okay, then that's on me at this point because I decided to move up in difficulty or I've never played against this civilization before. You know, to recognize the complexity so it's not too simple, but it's also that it's not too complicated to get a victory condition in a decent amount of time and feel like that was worth it. Because, after all, playing a Civ game isn't an investment in time. It's not like sitting down and playing Minesweeper. No offense, Minesweeper. (laughs) (laughs) Number 10 from episode 273. I think we should give the final word on this question from John C. Nunn. Discussion on optimum use of districts, which ones to build first, etc. To (laughs) Tamaki.
1: (laughs) That's the better word, (laughs)
0: so Number nine, from episode 293. Now, uh, you're good with doing the introduction, right? You've been on the show three times before. You got this.
8: That's right, yeah, so, uh... How to how have? What would you like me to
3: uh to, to <laughs> say? <laughs> uh,
0: why not you say Polycast is the best podcast that there ever was and ever will be? <laughs> it never is. That wasn't a joke.
3: Okay, yeah. So that, that that's what you want me to say. Okay, but what, what should I actually say? Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Number eight from episode two hundred and seventy nine. You've listened to an episode, right? Uh, no. Well, you're about to listen to one now, so to speak. Uh, Yeah. Number seven from episode 277. I kind of view it as like if you have multiple sources of chocolate. Well, they want your dark chocolate, and they want your milk chocolate, and they want your gluten-free chocolate, and all this other crap. So. <laughs> and yes, I, I like how you gluten-free threw
10: it the gluten free chocolate, even though chocolate is gluten free to begin with. I was yeah. going to say if your
1: chocolate has gluten in it, it's called a chocolate chip cookie.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, this is this current trend. We have to market things that have always been gluten free as gluten free if we want people to have it. Come on. It's all right. All right. Number six from episode 295.
3: You are not where you need to be. You actually need to back down to Maine to where the fish and chips place is, uh, go down the street to where Birch, take a left, go three houses down, and there you will see Dan's giant pile of forgotten top ten lists. It's a wonderful Join <laughs> <thing. laughs> Joined today by Makalua.
1: Sorry, Makalua's brain is still not online. Please call back later.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the main team. Continuing to
4: help
0: you make responsible choices. Don't go to the top ten list.
3: <laughs> Mr. Dan Quick?
0: If these top ten lists are so forgettable, how come you remember precisely how to get to them?
3: And joining us today is Mega fans.
0: Hitting the snooze button
3: before the top ten lists come.
1: Mm-hmm. Good move,
3: good move, good move. It's not that they're unforgettable,
4: Dan. It's that we would like to forget them, but we cannot.
1: It's because Madge took him out and dealt with them, and that's where he dumped them.
3: Ah, well... Well, I do have to let people know where they are before, you know, things happen. If you leave toxic waste just anywhere, it could be
4: quite bad. You yeah, need it's to, a warning.
0: You need to start I forgot
4: to put up a sign.
0: So because you forgot to put up a warning sign, you decided to direct people where to go to find this supposed toxic pile of something?
3: Somebody will remember to put up a sign. Not my fault.
0: <laughs> You're passing responsibility to our audience? Okay, I'm, fi- totally. I'm fine with this. Well, that's the best thing to do. Number five from episode 291, what happens to the settler unit upon its capture in any one SIP title resonates across all of its iterations.
4: And Archon Wing, who is the topic creator, feels that it, it makes the game too easy to be able to capture settlers. I feel like we've uh, covered this in previous episodes to an extent at least. And uh, Archon Wing thinks that settlers should either be destroyed on capture or turned into a builder.
0: Back in Civilization 5 days, when that would turn into a worker, and then that worker had infinite number of charges, because we didn't even think of such a thing, then, yeah, okay, no, I don't get the benefit of settling a city, but I do get the benefit of something that, (laughs) continuously, if I want to, is going to be able to continue to improve parts of my empire. There was a suggestion in this thread to treat capturing settlers like capturing spies— that, no, you wouldn't be able to settle it, but you would hold onto that unit, and then that could become part of a quote unquote diplomacy system <laughs> 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 that you could then trade in future for gold, which you could then, for example, use to purchase a settler. Although, I don't know why do you do that? They'd be considerably expensive. But then that way, you would get the equivalent or an equivalent of whatever resources went into constructing that settler at some point in the future, but you wouldn't be able to use that settler for that purpose. Which also tied into a comment of, I don't see why you'd be able to capture a settler from another civilization, settle it, and then expect them to remain loyal to your empire because you captured them from their own people. Which, of course, then introduces a whole other mechanic, which would also be interesting. But I don't like the idea of just the settler turning into a builder, though. Yes, there's definitely the point about the AI makes it way too easy in order for their settlers to be captured. I think that's a separate consideration yeah. altogether. And yes, the AI is absolutely atrocious with that. But not just taking into account the AI, but also in a multiplayer situation. Although I don't know why you'd be sending unescorted settlers out in order for that to happen. But
4: Well, you wouldn't, but you could get overwhelmed if you don't have sufficient escort.
0: Yes, absolutely you should. So as I said, I don't like the idea of it turning into a builder. I'm open to suggestions about it not just being a settler that you yourself can move, but I want to be able to get some kind of equivalent output to that particular unit. And I'm kind of leaning more towards the idea that, hey, we can actually go and capture that settler, and we can extort that for gold... And then you might say, but then you're going to return the settler, and then they can go around and settle it. Well, in that particular situation, if that settler was going to be somewhere where you wanted to settle, then you can just hold on to that unit until you are in a position to ensure that they're not going to settle in that spot, or you don't care, and then offer to give it back to them. My only caveat to that would be, so as long as we don't have the AI overvalue the return of that settler, because they certainly overvalue the returning of their spies
6: when they could just go ahead and send out another one. Your
1: entire treasury and a couple of great works.
6: Yeah. (laughs) Why not treat them like goody huts? Like, you capture a settler and you either get a population boost or something that would be beneficial, but not so beneficial that it's worth an entire city and not necessarily building, but you capture it and it's like, hey... So you can force these people to settle in your city, and that's plus one pop for free.
4: My main issue is is counterplay. Like If somebody just surprise declares and hits the hex that a settler is on with a lot of stuff, even if it has sufficient escort otherwise, that settler is instantaneously removed from the map as far as the person who originally built it is concerned. That's true if it's a goodie hut, it's true if they turn into a builder, because if they get recaptured, they're not going to turn back into a settler, and they didn't survive either. And if they're captured like spies, there too, as soon as that settler is touched, they're gone, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that is actually something that's bad for the person sending the settler out, if they have a chance at retaking the settler, which they might, we're not talking about the crap AI here.
0: Well, that's kind of like why I like the idea of it being treated as a spy, because when it does get returned, and you're right, yes, it does remove it from the map.
4: It's not getting returned.
0: (laughs) But I would have no problem with it being, going to give me gold or whatever it happens to be. I'm going to give you the settler, but the settler is certainly not going to be returned to wherever it was on the map. I'm going to send it back to the nearest city that you happen to be at, for example. So you do get that unit back in that situation if we can come to an agreement for getting that unit back, just like a spy.
4: Yeah, it's it still basically destroys any your opportunity to settle in the near future, because, like, no incompetent is going to let you get that unit back for a decent price anytime soon. It's basically gone.
0: I would say that then go ahead and construct another settler. I mean, yes, it's frustrating that it's been removed from the map, and you could be surprise decked out of nowhere. Oh my gosh, you know, like, <laughs> we were friends, but friendship just ran out, or I don't know what I did to annoy you. What do you mean we just met and you declared war, you just don't plain like me. Like, screw that. But I guess that ends up being the chance that you take in sending it out there and having to decide what is or is not a, a sufficient escort. Because sometimes crap happens. But I also don't like the idea that once it's taken, that you're really not going to have an opportunity to get it back as it is right now because you're just going to turn around and settle it. That no, that unit has kind of in this, this suspended state where at some point in the future you have the opportunity to get it back and to get it back on the map.
4: Yeah, just in practice, it might as well be gone if you do that, which I'm not sure actually makes the game better from a design standpoint. So yeah, it makes it harder to abuse the AI because the AI sucks, but that's really not what we need to be uh, building mechanics around. The real question here is, is the capture of a settler relative to other things too strong? And I'm not sure. Honestly. Oh, no. Well, but nobody had should this be argument letting their, nobody should be letting their stuff get captured
0: that easily.
3: Well, it should still not be allowed to be captured and stay a settler. I'm not convinced from a balanced standpoint.
0: I'm right in the middle that, yes, I think it should be captured and it remains a settler, but the person who captures it is never going to be able to use it as a settler themselves. The best they're going to be able to get is some kind of gold or some kind of combination of resources in order for that civilization that it came from to get back at some point to treat it again like a spy. But at some point, oh my gosh, you want way too much money for that, or you just just like you want way too much money for the settler, screw it. I'm just going to construct my own again and be done with it and try again. And now, since I know that you're out there and you're probably watching for me to come back, I'm going to protect it that much better this time.
3: Or, for total giggles, sure, you can leave it as a settler. Sure, you can found a city with it. But maybe we have a mechanic that says this settler actually belongs to that civilization's people. And when you tell them to go settle here, they'll go, yep, no problem. We're going to go join them. Why don't you just have it settle it as if it's a captured city?
0: That's what I actually thought we were going to say, Matt. (laughs) That there would then be no growth. In that city. Fine, fine, you can ask us to construct stuff here, but we're not growing until such a time as there's some kind of diplomatic interaction, and that's not necessarily the same thing as having a diplomatic system, (laughs) a diplomatic interaction that would then allow you to say, okay, fine, that quote-unquote releases that city out of being occupied.
3: Because then the other civ could get a CB called Liberate, and then they could go liberate all of their uh, cities back. Yeah, that'd be reasonable. Be fine with it, and of course, all the population that city is considered of that other civ by everybody.
4: At least until you conquer that civ completely, which is probably going to happen because they're hosed.
3: Yeah, <laughs> but even the game still thinks about uh, like even if you hose somebody completely, somebody else can come along and liberate them. Yeah, and in, in the game code, it'll just assume that that city is part of that civ, so they can get liberated.
0: Or they could just bring civ back from the dead.
3: On that brand new city you just settled. Oopsies.
4: I think that's fine, though. Like, there's some risk of that, but I mean, let's be honest. If you're losing cities like that, especially stuff that you're founding relatively early in the game, you're probably not going to win, even if it's your own city. It would be pretty rare to lose a city like that and then win the game.
3: Yeah, no, but it's for ownership. So, say, I don't know, you're at war with somebody, you don't actually want to wipe them out for whatever reason, but you just really hate where they're settling cities. So, you beat them up, steal all their settlers. Burn down cities you don't like. Plant new cities where you do think that they should be planted, and then hand them all back.
0: I guess. Oh, speaking of giggles, I know what you do. We just treat them like great people. Hey, you've captured a great person. Whee! They just go back. <laughs> <home>.
3: <laughs> Teleport. <okay>. <laughs> Teleport <laughs> magically back.
0: Oh my gosh,
1: no. <laughs> you sent this somewhere halfway across the world. Oops, I hit it. Well, now it's back in your capital. Good luck with that.
3: The barbs would be sad. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Do you mean barb barbs, or do you mean other opponents that you regard as barbs?
2: Yes.
1: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I like <those> <laughs> Number
0: four, from episode 286. Considering how Australia was chosen for entry into Civilization VI generates general discussion on the selection
7: process. I've seen a lot of uh, diverse opinions online. The reason I made Australia in the first place is to prove that it could be legitimate. You could make a Civ for every single nation on the planet, and consider no, how no, legitimate. No, this, this, yeah. no, this is the thing, though, because I kept them being pushed back originally in the pre-release Our Brave New World. I kept them raising the issue of, hey, could Australia be a thing? And everyone's like, no, it's civilization, not nation state. Get back in your cage, you monkey. Um, so I was just <laughs> yeah. like, no, I'm, not
1: gonna
7: be, I'm not going to be told no. So I thought, okay, how is it possible to present something in which you could do something that normalizes Australia? And gives access the justification that they need to, in order to consider Australia. So you push extremely hard for it and try to portray it in a legitimate light. And the other end goal to that, essentially, was so I could move on to make more sort of diverse, interesting indigenous cultures that people haven't heard of, but those wouldn't have ever been as popular if you didn't do Australia first, because those were normalized alongside Australia, which is now normalized alongside historical heavyweights. So it's, it's a know. step-by-step process, I reckon, uh, if you want I, in diversity I think... the game. No,
3: I, I don't think this is a diversity game. I mean, people have complained quite a bit, but if they were going for the quote-unquote sieve heavyweights, then there's a long list of sieves that should have been in, mm-hmm. like, just the base release, never mind the DLC, Lovely. and others that should not have been in at all.
7: Brazil? Hey, wh- Brazil, oh, what, why, why Brazil, though? Is it just more of a, <laughs> does it seem as a marketing thing, and therefore it's less worthy? It's, it's a, it's not really a sieve. I mean... <laughs> At all. Even as bad as an English shiny
3: right,
1: by any side of
3: It's fine.
1: Yeah. Maybe the word we need to start using is is it a unique culture? Oh no, that's God. not a no, <laughs> really? no,
3: we're not going <laughs> there. oh okay. crap, no. Oh, no, those are fighting words.
4: Holy crap. Yeah, I'll just duck out of this. It's <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> well, my chunk. It's different enough that I don't really care. I'm fine with it personally. Yeah, no.
3: I mean, realistically, I don't care overall. They could make whatever they want as long as it's fun to play. Who cares? But there are the quote-unquote historical heavyweights. You know, those who actually had an impact on the world, regardless of what people feel about it. Mm. They had an impact on the world, and therefore, it does not feel like a game of Civ if there is a lack of those Civs. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely to have civ 6 they call it eurofocus which i think is just crap but there's a few too many successor states or colonies yeah um right now and not enough civs that they were based on so it's kind of like put all the colonies up front and then use expansions for all the good ones hopefully
7: That was my thought, is like, if you're going to release Australia as a DLC, that to me implies that you're going to include a lot more historical heavyweights in any sort of expansion. Because if it was shoehorned into an expansion, you would think, oh, hang on. That means if Australia is included, that something else was omitted, because that was a really big thing, especially with Brave New World and Mm -hmm. Gods of Kings. Well, that's always the case. Yeah. Yeah. um, They have
3: exactly, well, however many Civs in their list for each Civ game. They have only so many that they can add. So, yeah, it's a limited set that's going to make it in. I mean, you go, oh, well, this is an interesting culture. And this is where I get into bad arguments with people when they start talking about, well, we need more from this area of the world because they're interesting cultures and they should be considered this too. But they're like, okay, but what did they do for the 20,000 years of quote unquote history? Nothing? Okay.
7: Ooh, those are fighting words. (laughs) 20,000 years of nothing. (laughs) Tell that to an indigenous person. Yeah. Good stuff. (laughs) 20,000 years of nothing. No, no, seriously. I completely understand where you're coming from in terms of this is a game called Civilization where you do have historical heavyweights battling it out, but... The thing is, with any Civilization game, there's always going to be your pandering marketing sieves like Australia oh, yeah. and Brazil. There's In always the going US. to be your heavyweights, <laughs> but there's also going to be your other diverse sieves. So I'm interested to see that now Australia and Brazil are normalized, what other things can be normalized, and what stories can be told on a level that usually wouldn't have this platform. Because I think that video games are a really, really interesting way to shape and change perceptions about how particular cultures are seen. So my focus oh, okay, on Indigenous okay. cultures... You say, okay, let's have a Native American civilization, and people would say, okay, Indians are just homogenous. But the thing is, well, you could no, make no, so many true. different. native civs <laughs> That's and not have them true. With these yeah, we, we
1: we had that a <laughs> like, couple like, of civs like, like, ago. Ah.
7: Yeah, 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 like oh my god, Native Americans. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, if you're dealing with an uncentralized culture. It's okay to blob to a certain extent. I do that all the time when creating civilizations, but the thing is, as long as they can share an identity, that they are a unified culture in some sense, then I think it's somewhat justifiable. But,
3: well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, an... ha- it has to be justifiable. That's you like can't that. put the Salish and the Iroquois in one group and call them. The it was, was pretty <laughs> hilarious in <Zip> yeah. <laughs> so
4: actually,
3: so And, and right so is the Holy
4: Roman Empire.
3: Uh. <laughs> yeah, well, that's okay, there's that too. Yeah, stuff like that's just bad. <laughs> Those
4: two are great, quote-unquote.
7: Yeah, I will be so disappointed if they ever release an Australian Aboriginal civilization that's literally just covers the entirety of Australia. Oh boy, that'd be heartbreaking. Well,
4: man, that's the War version was at the U.S. <laughs> Native, Native, Native I, uh,
1: Americans, Eric. Native American yeah.
0: I knew that when we were going we're to start talking about Australia, that yeah. mm. it was going to bring up this substantial, relevant side conversation. Let's just interject, first off, what Firaxis and 2K have said about why Australia is here, which, as far as I'm concerned, leads much to read between the lines that we can't even begin to. The team is, quote, often asked how they get their ideas for civilizations in the game. The answer is they listen to the community. (laughs) Congo was added to Civilization VI as the most requested civ by the community at the end of Civilization V, unquote. As a side, I would like to see your criteria for determining that. But okay, fine. For the sake of argument, let's
7: let's accept that as true. I I specifically gamed the system in order to make Australia happen. That's the thing. Like, I knew that... In order for Firaxis to actually pay attention, you need to game the system and get community support in order to get them to look in your direction. Because if you look at Australia as a very well-known American, and so does the Congo, and when you see what Native American civilization you want to see, it's always going to be the Cherokee. It's always going to be the civs that everybody already knows. If you listed the Shoshone amongst them, people wouldn't go for it because they had no idea who the Shoshone were prior to civ release. So it's interesting know, to see I there's plenty that, of people you know. who
3: like that sort of thing. Keep in mind, this is being made by East Coast Americans, yeah, so there is a limited uh, historical perspective on that front. When it comes
7: to is, like things
3: like what is Australia, I know it's this, this, and this because that's what we've been told in our culture.
7: Yeah, this is this is interesting. I was watching a couple of uh, videos at Faraxicon. I decided i just try to understand way more of the culture about Faraxis and a couple of talks about just how they came to conclusions through the Civ development process. Like, for example, Lena Brink was talking about the way that they source opinions online is the developers are constantly scouring forums, and Ed Beach even did something at the GDC where he constantly talks about how they scour the forums and how they try to find out what the underlying thought patterns of what everybody's doing, but also Lena was talking about the fact that they use sources like the forums and also, you know, the Frankenstein testing group to ask people about specific cultures and specific people, uh, and specific elements of cultures, especially if they're from that location. So it feels like that's their criteria in terms of the amount of research that they're willing to do to go out of their way. They do do a lot, but obviously there's a lot left to be desired, especially in a constantly changing world where people kind of need a bit more historicalness, I guess, or something a bit more clear as opposed to vague definitions and things that, as if they're kind of objective proof, if that makes any sense at all.
0: Yeah, Toucan Practice also said that Australia has been a consistent top pick by our fans, and now appears in a Civilization game for the first time. I think just generally to me, when I see Australia here in Civilization Six, when I saw Brazil in particular being introduced in Civilization V through Brave New World, I'm thinking, okay, they're going beyond those kind of historical heavy hitters, and looking at civilizations, and they're going to include in that criteria a nation-state. Yep. So, okay, I'm willing to accept that, particularly when, order arguments notwithstanding, because we've already talked about that, when you look at the number of civilizations that were added to Civilization 5, I can kind of see and say, okay, maybe we need to extend our reach, because as much as we want to have interesting civilizations, we want to be able to have it murdered mm-hmm. in some sort of historical base, Yes, we still want it to be interesting and relevant to the gameplay, but we want to be able to point to a specific group, and at a certain point, to get to the numbers that we want to in terms of adding civilizations, we're going to have to extend that out. I'm waiting yeah. for whenever they talk about specifically what were former British colonies. How they talked about Brazil got in as compared to say Canada or Australia the last time, which was and they. Oh time- yeah,
7: pretty much every single civilization that they dismissed were the civilizations that I were working on. Their reasoning for including Brazil was specifically was because they were hosting the World Cup. Yes. And um, also specifically because they were also hosting the Olympics. And if you notice, Firaxis is now, since Brave New World has, um, in every single release that they've done, whether it be Beyond Earth or Starships, and even with Civ 6, Brazil has been included as a base Civ. What I'm interested in is, are there people on the team that legitimately believe that Brazil should be a civilization irregardless of if it is a World Cup thing? Because it oh, almost I- seems that now that it's we're over the whole sort of Brazil is amazing because of the World Cup, it almost feels like the discourse surrounding Brazil, whether or not it should be in the game, is completely gone. Everybody's forgotten about it. And that from here on in, Brazil is just going to be a mainstay or a main sort of inclusion, not to be pandery, but also because it has historical legitimate weight. I'm interested to hear or know if developers on the team actually believe that or think that
3: yeah i have so, yeah. a feeling it'll be uh if seven rolls around brazil won't be in the main lineup they'll move because, on
4: uh, if you how can much scratch they... mongols you can scratch anything if you feel like
3: yeah it. <laughs> <laughs> although it was a free dlc up front so it's
4: true it was basically a main line so basically yeah. so it was like a yeah, day zero
6: dlc yeah a um, day zero
4: free dlc like that too okay
6: yeah, <laughs> yeah.
7: <laughs> like, no doubt directors are very happy with the lineup that they have, and obviously they have plans that we can't see unless we spot them in the background of a GameSpot video. <laughs> I can't believe that actually happened, though. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I <have>. um, that <laughs> definitely happened. But um, I feel like there's something that we don't know. Their focus on True Start locations, it, it does sound, uh, whenever they speak in public, that they sound like what they're doing is completely justifiable. And the thing is, I'm not sure if I actually understand how much the community really, really cares about civilizations and what civilizations get in and out. Because, yeah, honestly, playing as individual civilizations and having these grandiose leaders and stuff like that—these are the hooks that get people into your game. Well, it it also helps it's if like, there's
3: yeah, a sufficient amount of historical background for the dev, <laughs> because then they can pick and choose. Yeah. Uh, so what even they in pull
7: Australia. Out. Yeah, it was hard to design. Like, this is actually really, it's really difficult to find what to do for Australia. And I struggled for a long time. Literally, the Prime Minister was one of our unique units, mainly because I can get a great quote in the game of, by Tony Abbott, which was literally Wait. nothing. It was, because great quote was dot, 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 you're not saying anything, Tony, more dot, dot, dots. <laughs>
0: Maybe as a final point on this, I mean, we could have a whole episode about this particular topic. Yeah,
1: yeah. As
0: yeah. I know some people have said to me, so, Dan, what do you think about Canada still not being a Civ? My default answer has always been you've looked at the mining community, right? But as yeah, an official yeah. Civ, look, first we had Brazil in an expansion pack for Civilization five. Now, as yeah. DLC, we have Australia. So if there can be Brazil and there can be Australia, then there is hope. There is always hope.
3: And I hope that they leave it out permanently. <laughs>
7: <laughs> the thing is, Matt, you know that I am going to personally push for Canada.
3: Ooh. Yeah, but me being Canadian, I actually don't really want their take on Canada because, frankly, a lot <laughs> that, of it is bullshit. Yeah, no, absolutely.
7: That's why I and tried to really push don't Australia want, in, a, really, in a direction that yeah, was I legitimate.
3: really don't want the bullshit Americanism take on Canada because Americans, more than anybody else on the planet, know nothing about Canada in general.
7: If we're talking about reading between the lines, Australia was released at the same time as a modding update. Mm. Yeah, Australia (laughs) being one of the most popular mods. Oh, I just spelled it out for you when you didn't need to have it spelled out. All right, move on. on. There you go.
0: (sighs) I will say, in response to Matt's comment, given that Firaxis has now done both Brazil and Australia, given how well they have done with Australia, and I'm not talking about the Civilpedia text about the Civ, I'm talking about the, the actual the abilities that we see in game, I would be interested to see what Firaxis' take on Canada would be, but also recognizing that that will not be the only take. Number three from episode 289. Making tall empires valid again is an argument not about to dissipate anytime soon.
8: Population matters. Increase science or culture, population, or both. Well, we had this topic by MyB7221, and he was talking about basically um, that in Civ 6 you have ICS as the most valuable strategy, and he wants to get tall to be also a viable strategy in the game now, so... (sighs) Hmm. The answer to that,
3: son, is no. We don't need to bring
4: back the cancer concept (laughs) from Civ 5. Thank you very much.
3: Actually, well, let's see. ICS is not king in Civ 6. Expanding is, but ICS is not. It's too much effort for no real gain over going wide. You can play against other people, and if you just say 10, 12, 14 cities, that's not ICS because you stopped, and you spread them out of it, So that's still better. Districts are important. Yeah, and you need to grow yeah. to make more than one. Yep. Tall is not a viable strategy. Yep, nope, don't care, even. I mean, let's call it. ICS is going super wide. Quote-unquote tall is not expanding. Couple cities is not an empire. Too bad, get over it. You have to expand a bit. But tall cities, which is probably the more important thread to pull out of all this, tall cities are important. You need to be able to get some tall cities into a game.
4: And they do confer an advantage. There's plenty of incentive to grow your cities into yeah. sex.
3: Yeah. Plenty uh, of incentive. But making pop matter, yes, is when you have a lot of pop in a city. That should matter a, bit, a lot more. Increasing science and culture, let's just kill that right away since most of the thread completely ignored it. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that should actually go the other way. So that pop matters more. More science and more culture just means if I've got 100 pops spread across 100 cities, I've got the same amount as you do from population if you spent 1,000 turns trying to do that in four cities.
4: I just want to point out, picking what land you're acquiring and how you're working it, how you're improving it, and how you're distributing your population onto that land is a central element of the strategy in the game. So if you are going to give a lot of resources, a disproportionate amount of resources, to just having larger cities, you do to an extent trivialize the importance of the land
3: work. Yep.
4: Also, contesting over land is a important aspect of conflict in the game and how you gain an advantage over other nations in the game. So having at the point where that doesn't matter because you have in- enough incentive that you can get by just by not using half of the map, literally. You could see that and survive sometimes oh, on decent sized yes. maps. Civ it was 5 like was land was still unused.
3: Even smaller maps. Like, oh I yeah. went four city tall and so did the AIs and look at the massive empty land and yeah. near at the end of the game. It's just like no. You that actually had
4: sense. hard disincentives to not use that land. And yep. then you had less incentive to compete over that land. In fact you would disincentive conquering yep. someone would actually set you back sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't see the upside of that from a design perspective, and I was happy to see it leave Civ sex.
6: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think the incentive should be
3: take advantage of whatever land you can get, but you don't want to disincentivize trying to squeeze cities into literally every possible gap you can just to get the population there. Well, I think there's three things, and this is probably a thesis, so be warned. <laughs> um, when it comes down to how empires are built in-game. There's three primary levers that cause problems. ICS is all about the per-city bonuses. The more cities you have, the more bonuses you get, the more things you can do. So in Civ Six style, ICS, the whole concept at least, is that more cities mean more quick districts, and you also get districts at low pop, so that you can just stay at sub-seven pop, get your two to three districts in, no specialists, no nothing, you just get a couple things in there and you're done, because the districts are so powerful and you can spam them. I would agree, especially if you incorporate the city-states in there, where they give you plus per every district. That's all about the city, just like Civ four or Civ three well, Civ three more with the ICS. Where the Pretty individ-
4: much any said Civ, yeah. other than five, had it, yeah. good per-city incentive.
3: Yeah, it's all about per-city. That's why you want to pack them in as many as close as possible. Quote-unquote, tall is all about the per pop and overdoing the per population side of things. And in theory you can get that with ICS, but you basically you go too far with the pop. Neither of those are working what has been said so many times, which is the land is the thing that matter. You use the map. Neither of those things actually affect how you utilize the map at all. With cities. So both of those should be disincentivized so that you actually go towards the middle. There's a few problems with doing that, obviously, and the game just never changed. As much as the map is the thing, the game didn't change enough mechanics to make that viably correct in the respect of tall city versus wide. So one, you can spam districts. You shouldn't be able to. There should be some sort of real limiter on... If you put down a district... That should disincentivize you to expand or something. You shouldn't be going, well, I have a commercial district in every single city. No, you have commercial districts in high-value places, very valuable trade locations, stuff like that. But that's it. You don't just spam these things everywhere. Same for universities and encampments and all the other ones. There should be some limitation on the number of districts you can do. Population could be one of those. And the fact that you can spam districts out at one pop is crap. That should be pop four as a minimum, I think, personally.
4: If you can make a case for making it higher, even...
3: Nah, I'd stick to pop four, because you have to be able to get enough districts in. If you try and go tall in a city, like if an individual city's got a crap ton of food and you're trying to grow it, you should get benefits from that, so it can't be too much...
4: Oh, if you've got a crap ton of food, you're going to get higher pretty quickly, yeah. unless, I guess, you don't have the fresh water.
3: No, there's also, I mean, even if you have all the housing for it, yada, 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 From based on amenities, the maximum number of amenities you can get anywhere near the city, you're stopping roughly about 24, 25 pop, give or take. Okay, yeah
4: I, I, yeah, I see what you're saying.
3: When you divide yeah. that by, say, eight or nine, there's only so many you can get in there. Yeah, you can't get too far away from 4, I guess. It's yeah. That's true. Uh, but having it at 4 means you require one amenity before you can get a district for that city. So you can't just mass spam commercial districts and keep yourself below the uh, amenity requirement for cities. So you have to put some investment in before you can get a district. That'd be my personal preference is to start at pop 4 for districts. Second part to that, you need less food to grow at low pop versus high pop. This has been a problem since the beginning. It is something that should have been changed in Civ Six with the whole concept of centralized cities, especially when you start kicking neighborhoods. The whole concept is population moved to the big cities. So Oh
4: yeah. That was also more of an a decent design choice when you had multiplicative multipliers for the cities. So you can have like plus hundred percent of something. That's part of the design rationale that originally made the higher growth requirements for large cities is because the value you get out of them was still greater than a pop growth in a smaller city, comparably. But that's not true anymore, so I don't see why we still have the scaling.
3: Yeah, that really wasn't that true in Civs 5 either.
4: Well, no, but Civ 5 and Civ 6 have both held it over from early Civs when it was absolutely crucial.
3: The pop growth concept needs to be changed, or a migration policy, or something. Um, Something that fits the mechanics of the current game, yeah. yeah. When neighborhoods kick in, you should see population either move to those big cities or allow for, uh, based on your housing, not just some small pop growth bonus. You should see way higher. And lower cities, if you kill off the fast growth in low pop cities, that'll also slow down your ancient era game. So you're not going to be in the Renaissance within 60 turns, where you actually maybe need... Some districts to every district you slap down increases your uh, growth potential or minimize the box uh, curve for uh, low pop versus high pop and effectively make it easier that when you're popping out neighborhoods, if you're trying to copy the industrial revolution concept of population move to the big cities, then you need to add that mechanic in there. It needs to exist for the game to still be about the land. And not about going taller. Am I spamming population in a single city or am I spamming number of cities? It shouldn't be about either of those still. That's probably one of the key problems that has to be changed is how food and growth, like even food, food should probably be more global or at least start local. If it starts local in an individual city and then as you go and you have roads and you have more infrastructure, food could be transferred from low pop farming cities to uh-huh. high pop cities.
4: That'd be such a major change. I'd like yep. to see it, though.
3: You yeah, know. I mean, food and growth has been one of those constants that has worked almost exactly the same, as far as I remember back
2: going back almost all the Civ games. So.
3: Half-trade routes generating it out of nowhere in the newer games. Yep. Obviously, plus per building or in districts and stuff like that. Some of the pluses aren't really that big. Obviously, there's the usual discussion of bring public schools back or that sort of thing where you get plus per pop from those instead i think mega bears fan was in one of the threads trying to maybe do public school per neighborhood which starts getting really weird because you can spam neighborhoods and the game doesn't really work for a spammable district having buildings because which one do you pick but then he was starting to talk about uh, science per citizens in the neighborhoods based on their housing values and that just gets weird
4: yeah it's too far out of what the game scope usually does
3: yeah that's a little weird but bringing back the plus per pop at a public school level or whatever somewhere in that time frame would be useful that way a taller city would get you more but you'd have to do it in such a way that you would need say a second level building in a district to be able to uh, get that bonus you couldn't just spam it anywhere which brings to a different idea of not only should the number of districts be based on population but how about the buildings if, say, you can't build a university until you had 10 pop in a city, and then all of a sudden you could add, say, 50% boost to science output from the city. Yeah, it's true. And then you know it's going to be based on the number of people in the city. So you're going to have less places where you're going to just spam. And even on that front, just to go totally weird, every building in every district could require a population slot or something. So you don't just... You know, build empty shell cities. Can you for keep population, it at the city strengths, I guess? Yeah, obviously. You built it. It's still going to be there. It's going to be empty, but you still kept it. Uh, yeah. Okay. But I would require specialists to work the buildings. So each building can give a small bonus just for existing, but I would say that having a specialist in the building would be the thing that actually makes it get its bonus.
4: I guess you could do it that way, or you could just require have each building you own takes up your population resource, right? So yep. you can only have so many buildings, and then you can't build any more until you grow. Yeah, you could do that too. And but I'd probably do it'd this. It would be simpler, but yours offers more flexibility and strategy.
3: Yeah, because at least if you need a specialist one, it makes them useful. Uh, <laughs> since it's on the map, and you can put population there, just like any old tile, make specialists slightly more useful. Also means that you can't have specialist slots getting squished in, just because thinking the Civ 5 style, where specialists were slightly more powerful at the time. So you do like that five pop city that's running three specialists in the universities and stuff.
4: They are always competing with the tiles to work, though.
3: Yep. That's why you have to make specialists equivalent to the tiles, or better, actually. I would definitely have the buildings better than a tile, but I would still require a population to use it.
4: <laughs> the only danger there is you can get away from the map utilization again.
3: Well, um, no, that is part of, of the map utilization. Though. The best the place, buildings? Yeah, because you have to put a district on the map, and if the buildings are, say, tied to the adjacency bonuses...
4: Okay, yeah, all right, I can see that. Then perfect. you're actually still working a tile, in effect, you're just doing it differently. Mm-hmm. I can get behind
3: that. Yeah, it's still behind. It's still I, I wish behind. I could
4: argue with you more on this long <laughs> thing, but there's not a whole lot I disagree with, really. No? Yeah, I, I can't make the discussion more interesting.
3: Okay, well, there's still some more stuff. Uh, okay, because maybe you'll uh, say yeah. something
4: I disagree with more.
3: Yeah, we'll I'll work see. on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the thread that started talking about Sustratus?
8: yeah, Sustratus.
3: Somebody linked to Sustratus' thread about bringing back the height advantage, which is sort of what we've been talking about. And it's a little better on figuring out what the problems are in Civ Six with some of that. The city center buildings, obviously, that all give some bonuses. Now, granted, if the other buildings and the tiles were better than some of the stuff that's in the city center, it wouldn't really matter. Like, I'm not building a new city just to get a monument or green area sewer so and water mill. Well, maybe the monument, because that's too and cultured- you can't get that normally uh, yeah. without extra stuff.
4: Yeah, but, the other stuff would just be having a city for the sake of having a city unless you're doing something with it.
3: Yeah, because the greener the sewer in the watermill that's not going to get you more stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas the monument's actually giving you a yield that's viable. He mentions National Wonders, and I think those are dumb. Totally ignore those. National Wonders in Civ Five were bad because they were tied to having a building in every single city. It, it didn't make sense.
4: It's another multiplier concept that got dragged over from a time when it made more sense.
3: Yeah. And uh, just
4: it wasn't changed enough to fit the new mechanics.
3: Yep. A few big reasons why White is so good in Civ Six where he's talking about removal of the per city bonus penalties, but I think that's a good plan. Districts of buildings give plus X yields, not modifiers. And of course he didn't mention that you can spam districts. Trade routes are per city and much stronger. I'm fine with that, but if you cut Trade routes really aren't per city, it's more about the districts can be spammed, so we already covered that. And of course, uh, city-states, the 3-6 slash envoy bonuses are per district, which obviously is a bit rough (laughs) when you can spam districts. But if you trim back the number of districts, then that's not as bad. Though I would possibly say somewhere in there that the 6-level envoy bonus, instead of just being yet another copy of the 3rd-level bonus, there was no extra thought put into there. It could be that city states give different bonuses to different buildings instead of just a flat to the district. So at level three, you'd get a bonus to your universities. At level six, you'd get a bonus to your research labs. Then at least that might help trim it down a little bit for the just sheer spam viability. And of course, everything's all about production, except when it's about gold. Poor <laughs> faith. Uh, yeah. Production's the only thing that you need for districts. After that, you can buy everything else. I think to sum that up, there's a lot that can be done, and you're going to have to kill off a few sacred cows to do it. Those cows
4: should never have been sacred in the first place. They need their surrounding mechanics to make sense.
3: Yep. If you want to still have something called that way, you have to just completely change it in mechanic. Yep. Change all the basic mechanics of the game just so that we can have something minorly <laughs> different. <laughs> well, it'd make a better... I,
4: I don't think that's a fair summation. You want there to be decision-making that matters yeah. surrounding the interaction with these mechanics. And what you're proposing would actually require more consideration and thought more consistently than anything we have now regarding how you interact with terrain and cities. I'm not saying it would necessarily be perfect. You probably want to no. play with it a bit and tune it. But it's a big step forward from... Yeah, I'm just going to spam these high-value districts plus whatever is relevant to my victory condition, and there we go. There's uh, not a lot of thought in that.
3: Yeah, no. I think my <laughs> perfect empire for the Civ game, if we were going for like what style would be best, would be an empire that has a number of small cities that have specialization reasons, like why are they there, and a number of super tall cities. You have your core cities that grow and are the big regional control centers, and that's where you make your money, that's where you do your big research and stuff. But then you still have your smaller cities that have maybe one or two districts that are there for a really specific reason. You purposely choose each of those cities and what they're going to be based on what you need, not based on, I just want another city so I can drop another commercial hub. And four cities is, again, not an empire. Too bad.
4: It also doesn't encourage conflict, which is important in a
3: strategy game. Yeah, it discourages a lot of stuff. It's not just the war side.
4: If you remove scarcity as a factor in the game, then yeah, it's going to have a negative impact on the strategy of the game, because you don't get the old scarcity.
0: Number 2 from episode 285. Agreement, disagreement, and compromise abound in response to then things to bring back to the Civ series thread started by Simo. Number one. First to navigate the globe gets plus one naval movement. This used to be a fun challenge with the use for a war. It's sending off a boat as soon as possible to scout the world, trying to find your way right round first. I always kind of wondered, okay, it's the first to navigate the globe gets plus one naval movement. I like that for the unit that actually did that. I could see someone saying, not really certain that should apply to every unit on the map, but the fact that now you achieve this movement of being able to navigate the globe and you do get nothing. You should get something.
3: Yeah. yeah. Well, the concept is okay. Maybe not the reward. It's kind of like dragon rights, and you should get something for that, but not necessarily plus one naval movement. Just because you know, the world is round and you managed to get a boat around it. That doesn't make your boats any
8: faster, but you should get something. It should be the same as like a wonder discovering the world is round is a wonder. And, in that way, certainly there's not going to be any building or adjacency bonuses for something like that, but obviously. But there is some level of culture that you get for that, and it should be the same for discovering that the world's around. Yeah. You get
3: an inherent bonus for first to do something. A little extra, say, tourist or culture bonus or something, depending on what it happens to be.
11: I kind of like the idea of a Eureka moment for something. Yeah. I'm just not sure what that Eureka would lead into uh well let's see
3: no one figured out that the world was fully navigable until renaissance it'd have to be some form of boating tech in the renaissance yeah either culturally or the other so it could be naval engineering maybe yeah something along that line or the
11: exploration government yeah maybe that's what it is there you go done solved it put it in the game There we go. (laughs) Going to have to make a mod for that one.
0: If a unit gets to a natural wonder, then if you don't already have astrology, then you've got the Eureka boost to astrology. So maybe a Eureka boost to your next naval technology. HP fetch, uh, not quite as challenging as you think due to units being able to embark. (laughs) The fact that it was able to do that with its limited movement and its, especially with barbarians on the map, but not even just barbarians, you know, inability to really defend itself Actually, that would be impressive if that's how you got the circumnavigation, and then I wonder what are the other players doing or not doing with naval exploration.
3: Yeah, of course, the only problem with that is Norway would get it almost always, because they can go across ocean really early.
0: But I I also have to make sure that
3: it was a boat, or maybe it has to be a caravel. You have to send a caravel around the world, and then that would make it a little safer, because then Norway can't just use a longboat. Yeah.
1: That would be more reasonable.
11: Although I'm always far more impressed when Triremes actually manage to get around the world first. Yeah.
0: That actually ties into the uh, next suggestion, which was two early boats were able to get to the open seas. Yeah, in Civ 1 and Civ 2, the very first boats uh, were not restricted in how deep water they could go. Rather, once you entered the ocean, there was only a 25% chance of survival. Yeah. Uh, what this did was allow allow your chance at early exploration at your own risk. It was a slight chance, but it was yours to take, and it was quite fun. Yeah, the strategy for that was, okay... I'm just gonna do a little bit of exploration with, for example, my galley in Civ2, and I'm gonna go one hex onto the ocean, and then I'm gonna get off of the ocean on the turn rollover so I can see, okay, how many ocean hexes am I gonna be able to have to cross? So hopefully you could find that one place on the map where there was one ocean hex. <laughs> and HP, again also this is a H patch, he's like, works better in early games when it takes less turns to cross the ocean and then makes references to save scumming.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: If you want to spend all that time (laughs) safe scumming for that, that's that's your choice, and what does that really particularly matter? Yeah. You're not progressing any farther in the game. I was able to take my early boat across the open seas. It only took me playing that turn 15 times. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
3: That's not a negative.
0: (laughs) No. Oh, and Epic Western says, adding a bit too much luck into the game for my tastes.
3: Well, I mean, I think part of the problem is they were able to get to open seas because if you think the Mediterranean, Carthage versus Rome, they're all trireme based, basically. And the Mediterranean is deep enough in the middle of the two that, yeah, it was kind of funky. So maybe what they really, really need to do to get that sort of thing is uh, have a third type of water. So you have deep water, but not quote unquote full ocean. Quote-unquote, full ocean is the, you're going to sink if you get out here. But then,
1: sea and ocean, maybe?
3: Yeah, something along that line. And then, quote-unquote, sea would still get out there and have deeper level stuff without uh, going on full ocean.
0: There's that, or maybe you could have it so that your naval unit has to have a promotion of some kind in recognition of, okay, you have some experience on the water, so you're likely to be the first to be able to cross the open sea is greater because this isn't your first mission. And so so then the chance would be not, woohoo, I've got a promotion, so now I can cross. Increase the chance of survival. Maybe instead of a 25%, percent you got a 50% chance now of surviving because you're experienced.
3: Yeah. Or if it's within, say, three hexes of a landmass, then you can still see the land, and therefore you still have a point of reference for sailing. Which is, I think, more the point for early boating, having points of reference if you're out in the middle of the ocean where there's absolutely no points of reference, then, yeah, there's a good chance you're going to die. But if you can see a mountain or whatever, then, you know, enemy that way.
11: <laughs> yeah.
3: Or there's more land over there.
1: You're out in the middle of the can... Pacific, not so much.
3: Yeah.
0: Almost to a level of abstraction, there's less likely to be mutiny on your ship. <laughs> 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 it's like, hey guys, we can see land, okay? So we <laughs> we can go ashore, we can make repairs, get provisions, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, as opposed to let's go that way, but all we see is a uh, horizon of water. Yeah, but there's totally land over yonder. How do you know that?
3: Because the dragon told me.
0: <laughs> uh, the third is also based on the water map trading, and yeah, I know we, we have talked about this before. Okay. This comes up now and mm-hmm. again, but according to Simo. Why can't we exchange maps anymore? Was always logical and realistic to me. Again, risk versus reward, exposure locations, and knowledge versus gaining info of the world. Why can't we have a map exchanging anymore? Because we can't have nice things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen a developer or the publisher answered the question about where are they. But if they did, I wonder what their answer would be. Why can't we do that anymore?
3: Eh, probably because it takes away from the exploration side of things. Well. And plus, I mean, early era maps were always really, really crap. Anyways, the game abstracts it too far to the point where it, if you see something, you you know it's there, and it's never changing. <laughs> and, you know, if a new strategic pops up, you automatically know it's there, even if you haven't been there for, like, a thousand years or more. So, yeah, you kind of have to think about adjusting what you can see versus what's out there.
0: Maybe the map that you get from a sieve is just an outline. Okay, yeah, there's land here, but... Uh... You want to know what's there? Maybe there's a luxury there, maybe there's not. Hmm, Maybe there's a barbarian camp there, maybe it's not. Why don't you go ahead and find it?
3: Yeah, but then you also have to throw in, do I want you to know that there's stuff there? So maybe I would only sell you a map that shows my land so that you know where to go to trade, but I'm not going to show you all this cool location on the other side of me that has all these city-states, because I don't want you to know about them. So you'd have to start adding more stuff to the mechanics.
0: And that's fine. I mean, Civ three had the ability to get show me the entire world or just show me your territorial map. And I guess with that and the diplomacy, it's not also, hey, I just met you. Want to trade maps? Yeah, that too. We should have some kind of relationship where we're at least friendly or at the very least neutral. And fine, if you want this map and we're neutral, it's going to cost you a considerable amount of money. And then you think about, ah, uh, maybe I can just go explore it myself. Or friendly relations, okay, it's going to cost you a little less, but we do have to have some existing relationship. It's not like, You know, the stereotypical dog, which is, you know, I just met you and instantly I love you.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Or maybe there's another level that's even lower than that going, how about a trade map? Instead of showing off the whole map or even all your territory map, you would just get this nice thin line from one capital to another or wherever between your two empires to show where you could send a trade route.
8: I think when we've come to the point in Civilization VI where you already have subcategories for resources, subcategories for war and peace options and negotiation, I don't think it's unfair to ask for, like, map subcategory where you can say whole world, check off uh, strategic locations, resource locations, other civs that you've
11: met. Honestly, the thing I most want is the ability to send false maps. Yeah, you know, hey, hey, come explore over here. It's a tribal village, and it's actually just like a bunch of birds. grizzly bears. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I guess the air quotes map training that I can think of is if you declare war on a civ or they declare war on you, and they're the suzerain of a city state. Even if you haven't met them, you've now instantly met them because they've declared war on you, and you can see their territory. And uh, unfortunately, and any are you're gonna have to channel your inner the me and team here. Although it's not just him that is probably gonna rail against this suggestion number four: tech trading.
1: Oh, God, no. No, 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 no. Even I'm going to rail against that one. That was OP, stupidly.
0: There's always talk of balance in game mechanics, but I find rather than slow the leaders, let those lagging behind do some catch-up via trade. Any two wishing to swap tech is their choice. You don't have to give away the shiny new techs. Uh, The tech trading that we have, air quotes tech trading, is to have some research agreements.
3: Well, it's more Eureka trading, but okay. Because you only get Eurekas out of it.
0: I uh, I could see, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud, if you're constructing a trade route, then it's going to take X number of turns in order for that road to be built. Maybe if you had a research agreement that was 20 turns or 30 turns or whatever, uh, maybe at the end of that, this can start to get complicated here, Tax, like if you're maybe in the same era as someone else and you want to have a research agreement, then you get a tech from that era at the conclusion of that agreement. I mean, anything's possibly exploitable. But that's as far as I'd be willing to try to experiment with, as opposed to, here, on this turn, let's trade this tech, and you instantly have that technology, or they instantly have a technology, or both of you do. Because sometimes it was tech trading for tech for tech, or you could just buy a tech.
11: Mm-hmm. Yeah, both yeah. of well, those are problems. Especially if uh, we have a turncast format, where it's just like, hey, new uh, PC neighbor, Dan Quick. Yo, what's up? Uh, nice to meet you. I will trade you my pottery for your mining. Okay. And before you know it, uh, we both have half the tech tree to ourselves, and we organize half half the ahead
1: of everybody else. And
0: we're scientific allies.
11: Yeah. <laughs> before you know it, we have four or five people who are each uh, contributing to the tech pool, and you know we're done with the tech pool by like turn a hundred. Yeah.
0: I hereby dub our relationship Kumbaya.
11: Yeah, tech trading's basically not
3: very useful in most games. Unless, of course, there are so many techs in a game that the chances of you finishing them all off by yourself by the time the game's over is very low. That can happen. And then that sort of makes sense a little bit, though I still don't like it. But in a game like Civ... I mean, yeah, Civ four, I think, it had more techs.
0: It did, yes.
3: A little bit more space in there, but yeah, the whole tech trading concept, not really a good plan. Phil will talk about how you could easily sell off a crappy tech just to get some good techs and yada 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 and how that was cheesy and blah 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 Mm blah. Or you'd purposely research a tech that no one else bothered to research so that you could trade it because no one would have it. And then you just run around and collect all the ones that everybody would normally research. Mm -hmm. Even if it was a completely and utterly crap tech. If no one had it, it would be worth something.
11: It's not a catch-up mechanic. It's a let's uh, gang together and uh, get twice as much tech progress Mm. mechanic. It is
0: helping to catch up, but it's more than that. (laughs) It's a continual shared research relationship that allows you to not have to make choices. Yeah. Number five on CMO's list, again, of 10 things from previous sips to bring back. Wonders that were grand. The wonders in the last few iterations of Civ have been pretty bland. Quantity over quality. Especially the version with all the national wonders with world wonders. Too many with not enough value. And I read that and I thought, oh, are you talking about civilization beyond Earth? (laughs) yeah. Quite frankly, I don't feel that way towards wonders in general in Civ 6. Yes, there are some wonders in Civ 6 that I think, eh. That's pretty situational, but hey, that's fine. Some wonders, I think, this needs some help. I'm looking at you, Great Library. But I don't feel that wonders are not grand in Civilization Six. There are just some that are better than others, and that's any civ ever.
3: Well, I think he might be overstating some of the crappier wonders, but it's not. <laughs> like it says it's much better than building something with great effect than something that offers one or two culture points per turn. That's not really a wonder <laughs> in the game right yeah. now. A lot of the cultural-based wonders all have slots in them for art, and that's actually grand because, well, it's adding a lot of slots and also allowing you to get even more points. Stuff like that is actually more important because it eventually cranks up to having way more than you would be able to get in a city. Yeah, okay, a granary in every city when you build the pyramids. Yeah, okay. But also back then the granary did something different, so there's that.
0: Well, that wonder wasn't just grand; it was super grand.
3: Yeah,
0: <laughs> it was the other way too. That's too much. Too much now.
3: Yeah, but I mean, I would say getting a free
11: policy slot from building—yeah, that's that- that's pretty solid. <laughs> yeah, I pretty aggressively go for uh, for Bin Palace because of that free policy slot. Like a lot of these wonders are actually pretty solid, and I will build all of them except for possibly Great Library. Yeah. Well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Some Wonders, it's like, okay, it's going to become grand because it's not just, okay, you finished the Wonder and now done and forget about it. More thinking about the Wonder once you actually have the Wonder. Yeah. The other thing with regards to Wonders in Civilization VI is, hey, I'm going to put ten Wonders in this city. That's not particularly grand. Oh, I'm sorry, you want to construct the pyramids? So you have desert, right? Oh, you don't? Oh. Thanks to be you when Simo describes last few iterations, wonders have been bland, that it has a significance of taking up a space on the map and not just necessarily any space. That's interesting. There's actually choices and thinking behind that. And there is one thing with regards to wonders in civilization six that I'm glad is not a thing. Guess what? Your wonder is obsolete.
1: F yep. <laughs> you.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Your wonder stopped working. What?
1: <laughs> How you Stop working.
11: Like, Poke, poke, poke. Is this <laughs> they need on? to change the batteries, <laughs> Mackie. Oh.
1: <laughs> you
0: know when the pyramids stop working? When you raise them to the ground. That's when they stop
1: working.
3: Yeah. Yes. What happened to that? We can't do that anymore. Oh, wait. Yes, you can. You burn the city to the ground. And then build it again! Some of those quote-unquote bonuses really should be time-limited. But not stuff like, this thing gives you a trade route. Okay, that thing's going to stop giving you a trade route after a certain point.
1: Yeah, no. That's not going yeah. to work. No. Speaking of
0: working, number six on the list, spies as units. A spy as a unit can be used to investigate the map in enemy cities. You can see troop locations, city specifics, but were visible to other spies who can then get rid of you. Maybe integrate the turn-based system of six-fix by moving them into a city to do missions with the surveillance aspect of troops, cities, etc. It's currently gone and needs to come back. Mm. I attend so much on implementation here.
3: That's what great people are for, didn't you know? Yeah, (laughs) because the worst thing that happens when you send your great merchant out there to go search the world is that it just gets teleported back to your city if a barb tried to eat it. But spies,
0: I
11: don't know, more units on the map. just feels like it's extra overhead to do stuff just for the sake of doing stuff rather than making it better.
0: The fact that you can have a spy in a city center now or you can put a spy in a district as well. It's an air quote unit because it is specifically on a place on a map, but it's not moving the units around on the map. So could there be a little bit more diversity in terms of what spies could do in Civ Six? Sure. Spy as a unit, it could work, but I'm not certain if it would work any better than what we already have, where it's a very abstracted unit. do see yours, that's true. You'll see it stuck in the city. And yes, it has to move to that city, but it does that movement on its own
11: i'm just kind of wondering where you'd want your supplies to go if it's not either the city center or the districts i can go to like to like the pyramids that sign says off
0: <laughs> number seven unit gold from deleting <laughs>
1: oh.
0: simply scale back the ludicrous sums not get rid of it all now you see the gold you get back from deleting the unit is not paying the maintenance cost
6: mm-hmm.
0: the other thing about unit gold from deleting the particularly fun part about deleting the unit was Oh, it's about to die next turn to the barbs.
1: Hey, I know! Delete. Screw you!
11: Yeah, I'm just gonna turn this one guy out of, like, the 20 that started into a pile of cash to buy 19 new people to go with the guy who was there. Yep, yep. This makes sense.
8: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, you could get into, okay, if your unit has only X number of hit points or less, then you get X number of gold back. Or X number of gold back if it's... I mean, sure, you could do that, but is that really fun? No, it's fine the way it is.
3: Oh, I'm sure well, somebody thinks it's fun, but
8: and I mean, you could even go as far as to say that you can't delete a unit unless they're in your territory. Well, you can delete units
3: if they're not in your territory, but you're well basically telling them that they're just going to die,
8: <laughs> <laughs> which is basically yeah. the same thing, anyways. Well, I mean, uh, like yeah. if the unit is in your territory and you were to say decommission a force, then you take what's left from that and apply it elsewhere. Whereas out in the wild, yeah, that's ridiculous. You shouldn't get gold for that at all.
3: You shouldn't get anything for that. Now, if units took a point of population to make, then if you brought it back to a city, you could delete it and get a point of population back, or some portion thereof in food for the city. Or you could bring it back to an encampment, and deleting it would provide you with some equipment for that type of unit.
0: Yeah, maybe give you a little uh, production boost on the next unit of that type. Yeah. That'd be fine.
3: Not a different unit.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to bring the warrior back to my city. Uh, here's the loincloth, infantryman. Yep. <laughs> Civil War is the eighth suggestion from Simo. Oh. I miss this one so much. Another great early Civ counter to a large empire. If someone is huge, then you attack the capital, and if you take it, then it splits the nation into two. Oh, it was such a great system. Um, I guess we're going to disagree on great. It was a system. I I yeah, uh, sure. Naturally, it was hard to capture a capital buried deep, but it was meant to be a challenge. What a great mechanic that disappeared.
3: Um. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, I think we're all going to disagree on the word great there.
1: <laughs> yeah. It was interesting the first time you had it happen in a game, but after that it's like, oh, please stop.
0: I feel like we kind of already have Civil War in the form of, hey, we haven't had sufficient number of entities for an extended period of time. Oh, yeah. Guess what? Here's some rebels. Now, we've talked about the efficacy of those rebels being an issue, but I prefer that approach to particularly the fact that he mentions splitting the nation in the two because you attack the capital and you take the capital. It's like, oh.
3: Yeah, because that oh, automatically caused this, quote unquote, civil war when somebody external <laughs> went and took the capital.
11: Yeah. No. I'm
3: okay with the concept of Civil War being in the game, but, well, one, we need more leaders. More alt-leaders, even. Mm -hmm. Or you'd have to have, like, clone Gandhi versus Gandhi. It'd it'd be weird.
1: And then you're developing Earth territory again.
3: Yeah. But then I would also say that the Civil War would have to, Dan was talking about, pop up because you played the game badly. So yes. if you went huge but you didn't bother providing amenities for your people and they all yes, got cheese. Yeah. You would have to purposely play badly. The way they set this up is like, Oh, a great early Civ counter to a large empire. No. Just because somebody got big doesn't mean they have to naturally get chopped in half because you yeah. didn't bother getting big.
0: So you want one of the four X's to be removed from four X is what they're saying.
3: Yeah. Is pretty much, yeah. Just for being large.
0: So
1: Meh. Your uh, empire is large and unhappy as heck. Well, then sure, but.
0: The empire is large and in charge of its own destruction. Wait, what? But civil yeah.
3: wars can happen on small places too. Yeah. You can sit there with your four city empire, and if you have absolutely no amenities and you've been at war for way too long and refuse to get out of it, yeah. You don't have to be a large empire to get a civil war.
0: And seeing as how with amenities now in Civ 6, it's like, okay, hook this amenity up. So, okay, you know, and there's the automatic calculation about. Okay, so there are cities that you have. We're going to give one amenity to this city that's near here, and one amenity to the city that's not near here. So this is where you get the, oh, I don't have this same negative or positive amenity value in every single one of my cities just because it's in one city. It's in all the cities. So, you know, those cities on the front, because you just founded... Or you captured them and you think, okay, you know, I've been there, done that, you guys, you know, stay loyal to me. And uh, how come all the amenities are going to these other people? We've got these amenities out in the field that we could have improved, but they haven't bothered to improve it. Or, hey, it's been pillaged by barbs for some time. Now, it doesn't mean instantly, ah, like you separate, you know, become independent. But it's just you're more likely to have the rebel spawn because, fine, we're going to get your attention now. Since something else seems to be working.
3: Yeah, and well, frankly, there is an in-game difference between cities you founded and cities you took over. Mm-hmm. Especially on the war weariness. So, if those cities you just conquered in your war are super pissed at you, because well, you're still fighting that war and they're taking all the war weariness. Sure, why wouldn't they just randomly rise up and fight you back?
1: No, nope, reform our own nation. Get out. Particularly
0: if you've uh, moved your troops on. Yeah.
8: Yeah, <laughs>
1: there's no troops in the area.
0: Fine, we'll be the troops in the area.
1: Our empire now, you come take it back.
0: Now, H-Patch did say, well, an interesting option against large enemies in single-player. This is almost a guaranteed raid quit in multiplayer. Well, I, I think in single-player, if your capital was taken, you- you're already kind of behind the eight-ball, mm-hmm. but then your empire splits into two, and, uh... Yeah, that's just more rage quit. Number nine, the space race landing. In Civ 1 and 2, you did not win the space race by launching. You won by landing on Alpha Centauri, and the time it took to get there was subjective on how much power you would build your spaceship. And I'm going to stop reading right there, because in Civilization VI, it's not, hey, guess what? In one city, with one construct, space. I win. I've launched. No, we don't even have to get into that. It's not the, okay, the counter is on. It's, uh, hey, guys, they've just researched robotics. Uh Hey, guys, they've just built the uh, habitation component. And that can be tracked. It's a series of things that you have to construct across one or more spaceports. You could have what they've suggested here, the space race landing, where it's okay, you've got X number of turns to try to be able to do something to stop them. But I actually prefer what we have in Civ Six because it's staggered and it's something that you can monitor on an ongoing basis.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, there's positive and negatives in this one. I think it was an interesting mechanic so that it was a bit of a race going, okay, so how many pieces of am I putting on this spaceship? Do I take a little bit longer to build and it'll get there faster? Or do I go bare bones and hope I get there before somebody else launches something more powerful? That was kind of interesting in the race perspective. That's true. The, oh, well, I can capture your capital to randomly blow up your spaceship? That hasn't been near the planet for how long? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. no. The point of winning the space race is that you got off the planet in the first place, not that you found the magic make it explode button in the capital somewhere. The point of the space victory is that you left really doesn't matter what's going on back on the Earth anymore at that point. But it is a multiple step setup, and you know every time somebody finishes one of those steps, it's very clear. As soon as it, the first step happens, you know you've got a period of time to... Prevent the rest of it. So, I think on that respect, it's fine that it shows up at the end. I don't think we can bring back the let's launch before it's done part, at least with the way Civ 6 is set up.
8: Yeah, and I think to a certain extent, if you really wanted to play with that, you could make the program where researching this tech adds so much to a percentage of success of launch or offsets a certain percentage of failure.
0: Number 10 on SEMO's list, in the thread started by SEMO, was unit stats. Used to love looking at how many units I had lost, built, and same for my enemies. It would be great if this came back and was expanded. To group into overall specific wars and such. Little things, but added great interest to me. Sure. Yeah, sure. Data. I don't feel like it's missing, as in I absolutely have to have this in order to enjoy the game. But, yeah, it would be nice.
3: I mean, it provides narrative, right?
0: It does. It would be easy to track in the coding, I would think, and then just have a nice little user interface to display that information. And you go looking for it, and if you want. And if you don't, you don't.
8: I do collection of Civ mods for, like, one of the websites I work for, and I think I've seen something like this already. It's not that hard to accomplish. No. thirty already in there.
0: Elsewise in the thread, there was one person who suggested five more from Yurik. Number 11. True huge maps.
3: Well, sure. I want my 5,000 by 5,000 size map, but I also want the supercomputer that can run it.
0: I was about to say, and I also want turn times that don't last five to six minutes. (laughs) (laughs) The option of a map not only connecting east to west, but also north to south.
3: Well, yeah. Yes. We used to have north-south maps. Unless he's talking about no side-scroll and common map, but rather being able to go north to south, which is a little confusing. (laughs) You'd have to go around for that to really exist. We already said no to that. And even then, you couldn't directly do it because you're actually really going around. So
0: number thirteen, transporter units instead of embark.
1: No, no, like how it is now. Thank you.
0: I admit, when they first talked about getting rid of that in Civ Five, I thought, hmm, I don't know. That sounds a little too easy. This to that the other thing. You know, I'm not happy with transporter units, but I don't know about getting rid of them. No, I'm certain about that now.
3: Hmm. Do they have to deal with embarked units a little better than they do right now right now being embarked only reduces your combat strength by like four or something stupid like that and i'm sorry your swordsman who is swimming in the ocean is not at the same combat strength as my boat that can smash you
0: it is humorous it's like oh yeah there's a swordsman in the water i'm gonna take my battleship still have half of its hit points left
3: yeah what's with that crap
0: option to exclude city states from the game and option for vassal states obviously I initially read that as to exclude certain city-states from the game.
3: Can't you slider that down to zero? Yeah. See?
0: Already done! (laughs) Option for vassal-states, that's a whole other separate... (laughs) (laughs) It's a mechanic. Well, what do you mean by vassal-states?
3: Well, maybe if you go smash and grab somebody, instead of just taking their cities, you say you're my little puppet now.
0: How very PG of you, but yes. Yes.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You're my puppet you do what I tell you. And then people hate you a little less because you puppeted them rather than wipe them out. Maybe.
0: Number five, from episode 272.
1: Amazing.
4: I am now a better person in the relative sense, apparently. But, okay. Perfect sound effect. <laughs> we'll, we'll just keep that. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, you, Mackie. my statement, sure. Was <laughs> so
1: the laptop hand kicking in? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, it was. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Number four for episode 283. First ring when I'm calling Mackie's phone number. Oh, there she's Skype online. Huh. I wait till noon, and if she's not Skype online, then I call.
4: I mean, the crack
10: of 11 a.m. is pretty oppressive, but... Uh... I was under the impression that she lived in, like, Hawaii or something, and it was, like, 6.30 in the morning for her. <laughs> No. 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 For years, I've been thinking she lived in Hawaii.
4: Why, <laughs> because of her name, I guess? Or?
10: The combination of the name and the constant complaints about the morning. <laughs> mm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty amusing, actually. Oh, aloha, Mackie. Aloha. <laughs> Number three, from episode 295.
1: Are you putting your thumb somewhere where it shouldn't be?
0: Do you really want an answer to that question? <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, it's a metaphorical thing.
0: It's a metaphorical thumb? Oh, wow. Okay, well.
1: <laughs> okay, I'm not awake. I meant rhetorical. Sheesh. I meant, oh. It's a rhetorical statement. There we go.
0: <laughs> Show you a rhetorical thumb. Number two from episode 291. I like that. I like that. I am going to let someone play with the toy that I'm not currently playing with right now because I'm not playing with it. That is spectacular. I, I approve this logic.
6: It's efficient, isn't it? If you're not using it, let somebody else use it, now they're getting bonus, and then you look like the good guy, right? That's-
0: yeah, except that's wear and tear on the toy, though. I mean, are you taking that into account? Because then you might not be able to use it as much in the future, because someone else has, and they've taken those turns away, from- I mean, those moments away from you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, what's it worth gold per turn, then? <laughs> I don't know how much gold per turn you got. I'll take one less than your maximum, because I'm reasonable.
3: I'll just take all yours.
6: <laughs> See? magic's not reasonable, but I'll I take it reasonable. all and then declare war on you next turn and take it back. So. I denounce you.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> Whatever will we do?
6: Okay. We'll <laughs> be friends in be turns.
0: Oh, crap. I can't denounce you. You've already declared war on me. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, <laughs> oh, and I'm also
6: friends with your friends, so now you can't do anything. <sighs> yeah, I can. I can rage quit. See ya.
1: the solution for everything rage quit
0: and number one from episode 283 perennial civ series frustrations are raised then considered
10: I basically broke the article down into the three things that most annoy me about the way that the difficulty settings are handled. And those three things are, number one, by giving the AIs a lot of free stuff at the beginning of the game, it front loads all of the challenge in a game that's supposed to have very long play sessions. So you're talking a game that's going to be played over the course of days, maybe weeks, maybe even months. But the entire second half of the game feels like a whole lot of just clicking next turn until you get to a victory screen because all the challenge was dealt with in those first, you know, 200 turns. The second problem is the problem of false options, where the AIs have so many bonuses towards certain things that it becomes impractical for the player to pursue certain options or strategies, because if you try building any wonders in your first city, the AI is just going to warrior archer rush and kill you. So why do we even have the option to build those things? And when you've got like barbarians spawning four tiles from your capital, And having horse archers and horsemen, can you really justify picking survey instead of discipline? Things like that. And then the third issue is the rapid pacing at which the AIs go through eras. I have seen AIs hit the Renaissance as early as 800 BC, and I pretty consistently see them hit the Renaissance in 400 to 600 BC, even on difficulties like Emperor. And sometimes, but a lot more rare, even on King. A lot of that has to do with the beelining straight to cartography. And England and Norway are particularly egregious at that. Those sorts of things have always frustrated me about the difficulty levels in Civ. And then in the follow-up post a couple days later, I went into some of the ideas that I've had for trying to resolve those. But before we get into ideas for solving them, I'm curious if the rest of this group has similar frustrations or other frustrations with the way that difficulty is handled.
0: I kind of feel like Phil would probably like to say something about early spawning barbarians right now. Well,
4: (laughs) I I think that's its own problem, though, because
3: compared to other things,
4: that's trivially fixed. You can either delay the spawn of the barb camps or give a minimum range requirement from spawn location. And either of those things takes care of like 99% of the issue with barbs. So like, (laughs) that's tiny compared to what Mega Bear's fan is talking. About
10: here <laughs> i also think that the scouts should be something that the barbarians have to build instead of just given to them when the encampment spawns i don't think there should be barbarian scouts running around on turn one well, yeah, it's you want to a- it,
4: if it's far enough away then it's still a playable scenario I don't know.
3: Either way. Well, it's a question of how long do you want to delay? Do you want to be like, oh, look, turn one, time to start building units because barbs are right there and they found me? Or do you want it to go, okay, let's at least give you the first 10 turns to at least look around to find out if there's barbs. I'm very much a fan of pushing barbs back and having them in distance from the starting location just so that they don't jump into mass spam right away because that's just silly. I'm also a fan of not giving them access to horse units just because there's a horse in the neighborhood. In I mean, the
10: neighborhood is being very generous.
3: I, yeah, because it yeah. could be very far away. Or hey, look, the barbs are getting the horses from my horse, which is in my territory.
10: <laughs> Nobody on turn four has horseback riding yet, so you know we don't have the Huns in this game that start with it. So. It's ridiculous well, except, that the Barbarians uh, well, are out-teching the sids. Uh, plus, well,
4: even like if you can hold it off, you just lose so much time there.
3: Yeah, but to be fair, the barb horsemen that spawn early are weak. They are not the actual strong horsemen. Same for the uh, horse archers. They're weak. True. Scouts can take them. It's not until people tech up to horseback riding that uh, barbs start spawning out proper horsemen.
10: True.
4: but Their the speed, issue though, is have... problematic all the same because of how quickly yeah, yeah. you get into your land. <laughs>
10: That's what I was getting at. And it's not just that it's I've only got one warrior, maybe an archer at this point. So the horsemen come in, they pillage the stuff or attack me. I attack them and then they run away and disappear into the fog of war where I can't find them or chase them down. And then they come back with even more of them, including those wounded ones. So it's, it's more of just a numbers thing rather than that. The individual horsemen are difficult.
3: There's better ways to do it, and I would actually consider something similar to civs in the fact that they should, say, take land so that their barbed camp is the center of their land. And as they explore and as they grow, they would actually expand their borders. And then if you get too close to their borders, that's when they're going to start coming after you. And of course, if they control an area, you can't drop a settler in it, unlike right now where you can
0: there were two reasons that I prompted Phil on the barbarian thing. One, because I knew it was a trigger and it would probably be entertaining. Uh, this, <laughs> but the second reason was, quoting from your article here, Jason, and you said it already, the general inability to compete with the AI's economic, technological, and cultural handicaps often shoehorns the player into investing in military at the expense of other areas of development. It is the barbarians specifically that make me, more often than not, invest in military at the expense of other AIs of development, typically not other AI civs. And when it's so soon and so in your face and so detrimental, how they can be running around and pillaging. Sure, yeah, they're not probably going to be able to take the city, but then I'm running around and trying to repair it. But I need units to be able to defend the builders to repair it. Oh, they've moved in again and now they've quashed my military unit and they've taken the builder. Oh, now i got to construct another builder to improve. Oh, wait, no, I need more military units. And then that becomes the entire game is you versus the barbs. And then maybe at that point, then an AI proper comes around and says, hey, you look kind of tasty because you've spent 30, 40, 50 turns on managing this, yep. <laughs> right. and now it's just a snowball effect. You're not going to be able to recover from that, even if all else was being equal, even if it was just a multiplayer game, human versus human, other than barbs on the map, which is a whole other separate question. So, okay, the human player is not getting you know, the dirt bonuses that the AI gets, but you've still lost those 20, 30, whatever turns it happens to be to the barbs, and now we combine that with the AI, quote-unquote, dirt bonuses in a single player or in a multiplayer situation where you have AI, And it's just, it's no fun. You're going to want to restart because you're just that far behind.
10: Right. The Barbarians are a very asymmetrical challenge. So putting them right at the beginning of the game like that is going to be unfair to a subset of players. It's not a universal challenge.
3: Yes, if they're moved back so that they're not just insta-spamming just because this one Barb Camp spawned right next to this player but not to the other player then yeah, that's a bit of a problem. But there should be more benefits to dealing with the barbs like that versus not dealing with them. I'm of the opinion it all needs to be rewritten to be a bit more progressive. I do expect barbs to get horse units, but it should be within their zone of control so that they can start spamming horses, not, oh look, there's one on the continent, therefore we can use them.
0: We need to nerf some of these uh, early game barbarian adjacency, air quotes, Bonuses. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah.
10: Or, at the very least, one of the suggestions that I had made for trying to fix these problems is to have more options and customizations for the player. So right now, we have a nice little checkbox for no barbarians at all. It would be nice to maybe have different settings for how early the barbarians spawn, how aggressive they are, how many barbarians they get, more things to customize the experience so that your getting something that's more appropriate to your skill level and the style of play that you want to play.
0: I always found it interesting in Civilization Six, and I always raised an eyebrow, whatever happened to Raging Barbarians, as an example, that we had in most previous Civ titles, as right. someone saying, well, no, we've never had anything like that before, there's no precedent for that. Not that that should be the be-end-all and end-all of doing things. Right. But I kind of viewed turning on Raging Barbarians as, for example, if you're playing on Emperor difficulty, but you don't feel like you're ready for Immortal, using Civ Six yep. terminology, then turn on Raging Barbarians. And I always considered that whatever your difficulty yeah. level is, plus.
10: It's like a half-step. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, a half step. And you've suggested even more possible half steps or even lowering of a step, for example. Like, okay, I've just moved up to this difficulty level. I'd like to ease my way into it. Perhaps I could do slightly less aggressive barbs on this higher difficulty level.
10: And not only that, but maybe even also having configuration options to adjust the handicaps that are applied to the AIs and even to the players. So have handicaps that improve or reduce your research and growth bonuses and the AIs independently so that you can custom tune it to a point that feels most comfortable to you right now instead of just having to go up to the next difficulty step where it's just some arbitrary combination of settings that the developers created.
4: Even with all of this, you're still going to have games that are over before they're over. A lot. True, Because it's a 4X. And so like a small advantage can compound right if you're on a losing position and someone has a compounding advantage against you it's difficult to do anything by yourself because if you attack them then you're going to use more resources than they need to defend themselves and that's going to put you further behind but if you don't then they'll just progressively gain more distance if you were better than them then you probably wouldn't be behind at that point unless you got lucky one of my thoughts with these 4x games is that there's too much time between when the game is Having a runaway emerge and when the game actually ends, made worse, of course, by the slow gameplay and bad UI. But even if that wasn't a factor in the game, you would still want to actually end the game before it ends. This is the problem in Civ 4, too. Like, you're pushing for culture. You can defend yourself. Now hit end turn 60 times. Come on.
10: One of the things that I did like about Civ Four, and it is in my suggestion post here, is uh, I always enjoyed the um, the domination victory that was in Civ Four, where instead of requiring you to kill all the other AIs, you had to own a certain percentage of land and population when the game ended. Or did it just end as soon as you got to that threshold? I don't remember.
4: You had to trip both thresholds, and they were pretty large, usually over yeah. 50%
10: of the world's land and pop. I think uh, it was like 60% of like land area and like 40% of pop or something it, like it that. It depended on the number of saves. But I kind of like the direction that that victory went, where it didn't force you into these very rigid, you must kill everybody, you must do nothing but science, you must do nothing but tourism types of victories. It allowed you to more organically develop your empire. If you felt like you needed to conquer another civ right now because they're threatening to you, you could do that. And just conquering one civ didn't mean that you were forced into trying to have to conquer everyone else because now you've got crazy warmonger hate against you and no one else will trade with you you or do diplomacy with you um that's
4: separate from the domination victory though because that's a function of the ai's algorithms in civ 5 and 6 the ai's algorithms in civ 4 they did not care warmonger was not really a thing what you got was either a minus two for declaring war on a friend or think maybe it's a minus one and then like another permanent one for declaring on the target directly Right, so there I'm was many about- situations like with AIs that were cautious or less towards each other where you could straight up declare war 10 times on that target, take their cities and burn them. Nobody else in the world would flinch; They wouldn't give a crap at all. No diplomatic demerit whatsoever in Civ Four. So because of that, yes, taking somebody out did not result in uh, having to go down the military path. The other issue with the newer games, and also really with Civ 4 and before, really with every Civ game ever, is how the mechanics are balanced. The military victory is dominant. <laughs> Winning any of the other victory conditions requires you to defend yourself. And once you start involving nukes, science victories really aren't viable because you can just get nuked. And if you can just get nuked, it's a lot less resource-intensive to just nuke the hell out of the other people first, so they don't nuke you. And at that point, you might as well win Conquest or Dom. I mean, sure, you could then build a spaceship while everyone is a smoldering ash pile, but you might as well just go in.
0: I mean, I certainly like the change brought about in Brave New World and Civilization V and then Civilization Six, where a culture victory is... More direct and more aggressive, you know, in the Civ 6 context. Man, need tourists. Gotta get more tourists than everyone else. Not just about defending against someone else's culture, but being able to go on the offensive. But I think for the domination, what we had in Civilization 4 has been described. Plus, you also mentioned, for example, permanent alliances. Uh, (laughs) returning to that would be very helpful. Certainly the, you must capture all opponent capitals is better than you must take out every last single frickin' city in order to win a domination victory.
4: Oh gosh, yes.
0: Besides now, the warmonger thing, where as you said, Phil, you know, in Civilization IV it was there, but it was...
4: It was pretty limited.
0: It was pretty insignificant, and now we've gone the other extreme... Besides the fact that we need to kind of thread the needle back to somewhere in the center between those two things, if you had ways of going towards a domination victory, like population percentage, for example, then you could lessen those warmonger penalties and still be pushing on domination, because domination can take multiple forms. I mean, there's nothing preventing you from taking out all of the AI capitals or taking out all of the cities as well. But yes, it is nice to have something other than the one particular form of domination. Although indeed, yes, to a degree you are being dragged into some kind of domination, but domination should not necessarily be exclusively or even primarily military.
10: Right. And having more options for victory conditions and giving you the option to enable and disable the ones that you like or don't like, I think, is also a way to alleviate some of that pressure of feeling like you're forced to do things because of the conditions of the game.
4: They don't really mean anything, though, unless the military tuning is
10: very different. The
3: error rush,
4: though. Stop
1: giving him free settlers. How about that one?
3: I'm fine with the free settler. I'm not fine with the free settler getting dropped exactly four tiles away from the capital because it doesn't stop to go, hmm, I wonder if I should put this somewhere else. I'm fine with them getting an extra city. That's fine. That actually on high difficulty level means that you have somebody who's going to uh, be better prepared against just a silly rush that you can do on Prince. But getting four Eurekas on Deity and for inspirations, that is the literal reason why they just plow through the tech tree and the civic tree. They can start with the Eureka for it, and therefore they don't need to go find a natural wonder because it's already handed to them, and therefore that was easy. It's also why they get up to cartography fast, because they don't necessarily need to worry about getting Eurekas along the way. So they're effectively going at half the science cost per tech. And not doing any
10: of the work to earn that discount.
3: Yeah, especially and also because the tech tree is just one giant beeline that really skews the whole thing.
0: And I think as Matt was pointing out about the second settler on Emperor Higher Difficulty for Civ VI, and it's like, oh, maybe you should think about where you're placing this city. There might be somewhere better, which I think ties well to your point about the front-loading of frustration, Jason, where it's, you know, they're putting cities so close together they can't fit enough districts in, and what we were also talking about before about planning ahead. When you talk about it being impractical for the human player to compete for early game wonders, we've already kind of talked about that ones you might get lucky because oh the ai doesn't have a suitable location in order to construct that which could also include well they would have a suitable location but it's not inside their border yet and they don't know that it would be advantageous for them to go ahead and do that so yeah maybe i can go ahead and get that
10: but the fact that they do start with like three cities pretty much on turn one or two means that they've got a lot more stuff in their borders to meet those wonder prerequisites it's true
3: yeah except the problem is that they don't move those stupid settlers
0: So they may not have the production in order to be able to capitalize on what should be that advantage.
10: And that leads into one of the other problems that I brought up here in the era rush section, which is that sometimes all these front-loaded bonuses don't actually make the AI play better in the long run. Beelining through the tech tree can actually hurt you because it's forcing your units and your infrastructure to all be more expensive. And so I've seen games where the AI is in the modern era and they're still running around with crossbows because a they don't upgrade them (laughs) and b they don't have the production to build any of the new stuff that they've unlocked and even the cheaper stuff now in the case of districts is more expensive for them
3: no no they will upgrade the units it's just the problem is getting new units is really expensive like in my england lp i went naval map And a couple of them went straight to cartography and sure they had a handful of caravels when they got there because they were able to upgrade. But once those caravels were dead, the cost to build a new caravel was way higher than they were able to do it.
10: And uh, cartography does obsolete the Galley, right? So you can't yeah. build new galleys. They could still build quadreams, but yeah, they probably don't see. want to because the way that the AI flavoring works, they probably are just like, "Oh, I need more naval units. What's the best naval unit I can build? Caravel." Yep. Even though it's going to take sixty turns. Yep.
0: As for the point about it being impractical for the human player to get early great people, I would say, first off, which early great people are we talking about? I mean, if it's a great prophet, yeah, okay, they got Stonehenge, well, whatever. And that's a whole separate concern. Like when it comes to a great prophet, for example, we've talked about religion in Civ 6 before and some general concerns we have about, is it really worth the effort more often than not? However, if we combine this with, hmm, the AI really didn't settle these cities very well and they're really clustered together and they're not putting down the districts they should be putting down or they're putting the districts down and they're not getting the adjacency bonus they should have plus they don't have the production to be able to turn out those districts as quickly as they should getting early great people if i'm focusing for example say on great scientists and great merchants now i'm speaking up to and including on immortal here maybe on dd it's suddenly that much more dramatic but i don't find it impractical to compete for early great people
3: it depends on what great people like Commerce district, holy crap, if there's Congo in the game, screw you. (laughs) You got nothing. Uh, Commerce-wise, yeah, you're going to be fighting if everybody puts down the commerce district. Industrial-wise, yeah, you're probably not going to get there first on higher level, and so others will start picking it up first. Religion, yeah, that's a big fight. Even on deity, you can get the third or fourth religion, and that's really where you want to aim for, usually fourth. Generals, you can probably get, it just depends on who's in the game.
4: It's pretty difficult to get two classical great generals against the Deity AI. I've I've never managed to do that, but I haven't really tried either.
3: They're going to be at the medieval or renaissance era level after the first one. So, you know.
4: Yeah. But if you push for it, you can usually get that first classical era one.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Well, just like anything, if you push, you can get one. Uh, It just depends on who else is in the game. Say, Camara starts with multiple cities and she slaps down a bunch of encampments because she got to runs working before you because she got all those eurekas for it. You're not That's getting true. it. Stuff like that
4: can. Although I goes. find she yeah. tends not to. I was able to get a general on her as Norway, so.
0: I wouldn't say it's impractical for the early grade people. It's inconsistent for the early grade people.
10: It depends very much on who's in the game. I mean, if Greece is in the game and they're building their fancy pants, theater districts, then even the writers and artists might become hard for the player to get just because they're building that district so early in the game and everybody else's great people get expensive. Great People isn't as bad as the inability to get Wonders, but it's well. still a problem that nags me a lot of times.
0: <laughs> speaking of not being able to get to early game Wonders, uh, speaking of Dragged into Domination, I'm just going to take it. Screw you, because I couldn't build it.
10: Right, nope. and again, that just forces you into yeah having to play militarily, because now you've got to conquer everybody's stuff because their stuff's better than your stuff. And it's always going to be better because you can't possibly build cities as good as their cities as quickly as they build them. Well, as
3: quickly. You can build better cities than they can pretty easily.
10: In the long term, (laughs) right. But again, the problem is that all that challenge is front-loaded. And once you do start conquering people, the rest of the game just becomes an exercise in hitting next turn. Pretty much the only time I ever have a challenge with an AI on the harder difficulties late game is if it's a continents map and there's one AI on the other continent that just steamrolled over the whole thing like the point you mentioned earlier, where you get to cartography and there's a continent full of nothing but barbs. Well, in this case, it's you get to cartography and there's a continent full of nothing but Alexander.
3: I'd rather see the tech and civic Eurekas just disappear. I think that causes more problems than it's worth. And I'd like to see the science from pop get cut down to the same as culture side, so 0.3 per pop. And then if you want to give a handicap bonus to the ai you can give it 0.1 per difficulty level above emperor so that they would get a little bit more per pop which would still let them get through the tech tree a little faster but it wouldn't be two different tech trees being played at the same time
0: and you know jason in your second article in addressing these issues when i first saw the term rubber banding i thought oh trigger oh no Oh, no, but then when you started to describe it, I thought, okay, that's not where I thought you were going. Or you say that instead of the difficulty setting, providing handicaps from turn one, each civ would start out in parity, and handicaps would be dynamically applied as the game progresses and certain civs get ahead of the pack and fall behind, quote-unquote. So I take it that is tying to, for example, what the AI is or is not doing. Like, for example, if you want the Rika to research the sailing civic, then you need to take the in-game action of settling a city on the coast. So these dynamic applications are based on what civs do or do not do in that respect? Is that what you mean?
10: Yeah, kind of like that, where if a civ is falling behind in one particular area of the game, like culture, science, or stuff like that, give them a little boost towards those things to help them catch up. And if civs are getting way ahead in those same things, maybe nerf it a little bit, so that over the course of the game, The challenge is more evenly distributed. And I know that rubber banding is going to be a very controversial thing. (laughs) But as long as you have options, obviously you would want to disable that for competitive multiplayer. But for a single player game, if I've got the option to do that so that the AIs at the end of the game can become competitive, then maybe I want to do that. And I don't see any reason why the player can't have the option to do that, assuming that it's not a prohibitively difficult thing to implement from a technical standpoint.
0: Well, uh, that just sounds bad. To me, as long as the rubber banding is more about you you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it drink it You know, it's not like I'm not just going to hand this to you because you've fallen behind, but hey, if you take this action now and you execute it properly in various stages, you know, you chunk it over the next 10, 15, 20 turns, then you're going to put yourself in a better position to be able to deal with whoever is dominating in this particular output. Say culture, for example. Right. Then that's fine. I don't know exactly off the top of my head how that would look like mechanic-wise, but as long as it's not a handout, I don't want handouts. That's what I see when I see rubber banding. I don't want a handout Mm -hmm. or a takeaway.
10: Like what you said earlier with going back to the Eurekas, is maybe you've got a mechanic where if you're a certain number of eras behind, your Eurekas become a higher percentage of the tech cost. If you're two eras behind the most advanced Civ in the game, maybe your Eurekas are 75% instead of 50%. And mm-hmm. if you're two eras oh. ahead, maybe they go down to 25 You can do things like that as well, where it's still the proactive element of you have to go out and do the Eureka and I'm just kind of brainstorming ad hoc right now. I'm not saying. I would really,
4: not- really rather just have a mechanism to end a game that somebody's winning <laughs> rather than rubber banding people back into. Yeah, it. just just end that, the game is a tells new game.
3: Me like, oh, I suck at teching. I really don't know what I'm doing. Oh, all of a sudden, my people are really, really smart because somebody on the other side of the world actually figured this out. Like,
4: yeah, no. Xiphor had a diffusion mechanic. That was fine. It was very venable, well, no, but, but that's like
3: different though. That's very different than what was being proposed.
4: Yeah, very
3: and very different than rubber banding. I'm actually okay with if we can actually enhance the Eureka mechanic to be more dynamic, I would be okay with say somebody went and did sailing. You didn't. You have no water whatsoever. So yeah that AI has boats, it's got harbors, it's got fishing boats if you send a trader to that city the trader is going to look and go huh crap floats on water didn't know that (laughs) and they're going to bring it back to you and so maybe you get a little bump towards that
10: tech diffusion mechanics are definitely the more ideal approach to take for this sort of thing
0: there's a near literal application of leading a horse to water (laughs) yeah but not making them drink it
3: but I would do that for all the texts and all the civics. So if you see somebody, say, who's a theocracy, doing diplomatic actions with them, you'll learn more about being a theocracy just by talking to them instead of needing to have founded a religion. The religious side is the one that annoys me the most, where if you don't found a religion, there's like a whole series of civics that you just can't get because they're and all religious based.
10: What really bothers me about that one is that that includes two of the medieval governments. Yeah, yeah. Or put another fourth government in there that would be on, like, the economic branch or the uh, culture branch or something.
3: I'm okay with theocracy being on the religious branch,
10: (laughs) but monarchy (laughs) itself
3: maybe a little less.
10: Right. Monarchy uh, could maybe move.
3: But my point is there should be say alternate Eureka styles or different ways to improve. Like if you go somebody and you see a bank and you barely have market, your trader pops in or you send spies in, or you even just trade with them in general, it's like, okay, what's the bank for? It's for this. Huh. We should look into that. And you get a little bit of diffusion. Or somebody builds a wonder that's related to attack. If you go see that wonder, that should help you towards that tech. Yep, I I agree. So it's a bit of diffusion, but it's not a, wow, somebody on the other side of the planet figured this out, and I don't know them, but all of a sudden, I'm really good at doing this old tech. Or the other way, because you did bring it up, oh, I'm the tech leader because we're really smart. Oh, all of a sudden, we get really dumb because, well, everybody else is stupid.
10: And in fact, the ideas that you proposed for Eureka, uh, spoiler alert, I actually do have a draft of another blog post where I talk about an almost identical thing.
3: If you're fighting a war against somebody, they have muskets. You don't because you don't know what gunpowder is. Every time you kill one of their units, you should get a chunk of the gunpowder tech, even if you're not close enough. Even if you're like a couple techs back from being able to learn about it, you should be getting, bit by bit, learning by doing.
10: Yeah, there could be a lot of trickle mechanics where like, even if you have trade routes with other civs that have outteched you, maybe each turn you get a couple points towards that Eureka bonus, or you're killing units that are more advanced, you get a couple points towards those Eureka bonuses, and then maybe it could even cap at the 50%, like you got the Eureka, and then you have to do the other 50% on your own. So you get to leech half of a tech from other civs, but you have to research half of it yourself.
3: I'm also a fan of redoing the Eureka mechanic, so it's not always half. I think great scientists or those who give Eureka bonuses should get 60 to 70%, and spies should get some lower amount based on their level. And then people who leech get less as well. Right. I think that Eureka mechanic can also be expanded to different amounts.
10: Based or again, if you you've got it. two or three eureka's associated with each technology and and civic, then you could even have a thing where each of those gives you like a twenty percent towards the eureka. So you do one of them, you get a little bit. If you do all of them, you get the whole half or more, depending on what it is. Right, whatever the percentages that that you decide yeah. to do. But yeah, I can see stuff like that working as well.
0: Or even for example, hey, I'm sending you a trade route. How about open borders? Oh, thank you. So now, for example, it makes that trade a little easier. So maybe I get a little bit more gold, maybe get a little bit more culture, or I actually get some culture from that now. As an example, just as a recognition of, you know, you can go ahead and send the trade route and don't have to have open borders. That's fine. But if you do take that action, then you're going to get that little bit of edge.
3: Yeah. Or how yeah, you get science and culture from sending it to a foreign city based on their districts that you could directly apply that science and culture that you would get from that trade route to the texts that are based in that city.
10: Right. Like every turn you get one point towards the Eureka of whatever text maybe they have that you don't or whatever text that unlocks the districts that they've built.
3: Instead of just a pure culture to apply anywhere. You would actually just get that from the trade route rather than
10: Right. It could be both too, you know, just small amounts of both.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Because then you would start going,
10: Well, why am I going here?
3: Also trade diffusion. If you have a trade capital and everybody's sending trade routes to the same city, then you have trade diffusion for certain types of texts, like that great authoritarian regime that's sending trade routes to the democratic city-state or whatever, you can learn about different people. And just by having a trade center where multiple civs are sending trade routes to, then there can be a diffusion through that side as well. There's lots of different ways to help you with that.
0: And there were a couple of other things from your Frustrations article. Under the front loading of Frustration there, Jason, that we haven't talked about yet and I read that and I thought, oh yes, but and then also again, oh yes, but I already talked about the AI on cities and putting them so close together and the district squishing AI on offense, quote the AI still can't plan or execute a city siege, as it's generally inept at handling the one unit per tile hex-based comment and they rarely bother to escort their civilian units, unquote Yes, and I would append with the civilian unit although it's been better since the game first came out, but <laughs> my gosh, these civilian units, particularly the settlers, they have such a narrow focus. It's, I am going to settle here. And if you beat them to that point, not only do they not try to find somewhere else to go, but they just sit there. Yeah. And they sit there. And they sit there. And it's like, can you do something other than make me want to drag myself down domination at least? dominating this settler and capturing it. <laughs> like, wh- what are we doing here?
4: Yeah, man, you just got to guide him. You got to help him settle.
0: Yeah, I'll help you settle for me.
4: Yeah, yeah, I'll settle it for you.
0: God. Although, even more so, I had a reaction to uh, the AIs on defense. Quote, AI cities can usually easily be captured by the human player, unquote. Yes, that front-loading of frustration early on in the game, but there's at a certain point in the game where, oh, look at your military strength. It's so cute, it's practically a negative number. Oh, look at your city strength. I'm sorry, it's 90? 100? Ah. Because you were able to push through the tech tree, you managed to get those city defenses, you managed to construct one unit in that era, and now you've boosted the city strength. And now it's a whole bunch of, well, it's going to be 15, 20 turns. The game really has come to an end, but it hasn't really come to an end. So I can get these city defenses, which takes more time and effort than, in most cases, having this huge carpet of doom on the map. Although I will say, as a separate aside, if you can be accessed by battleships, and or by bombers, those things slice through those defenses way too easily. But short of those situations, either because I can't quite hit it with a battleship, or I'm not quite to the point of bombers, the city's being captured. It actually kind of flips from being too easy to way too difficult, and why am I just hitting end turn? This sucks.
3: Well, that's because there's free walls! Like yeah. The best yeah. walls in the game are free. You just have to get to a certain civic civil engineering and then just like instant free walls for everybody, including after you capture the city, it actually ruins the combat mechanic because Hey, look, I just took your city and instant free walls. Have fun trying to take it back. Jerk.
10: And as for the battleships and bombers, I'm okay with them being really powerful because, you know, the counter is you should build a Navy and build an Air Force to defend yourself. And right now the AI is very bad at doing both of those things.
3: Yeah. If you actually had an Air Force, then bombers aren't really a problem.
10: Yeah, this isn't Beyond Earth where there's only one air unit in the entire game, yeah. and all of them are either bombers or fighters.
0: Well, I don't mind them being strong, but it just in some cases, especially when compared to how else you're going to be able to try to bombard that city, when there's nothing else there, it's like, oh, I could move a siege unit, but no, I could just have a bomber and four bombers are going to wipe those defenses in a single turn. That is a bit too much.
10: Yeah, there can definitely be some changes in balance. But again, I think the big thing is the AI needs to build its own dang air force
3: yeah if there was a fighter or two up in that zone, your bombers wouldn't be wiping out the city in in one right. turn. They'd all be dying. <laughs> or Shoot there could be this the thing called anti-aircraft gun <sighs> could build one of those.
0: It's just kind of like, okay, your military strength is zero, but it's it's not exactly zero now, is it? Because you have these very, very nice defenses for the era, and you're that much farther ahead of me. I mean, which is good in some respects, because I understand, you know, I want them to be able to defend themselves, but it just seems to be such an extreme from earlier on in the game when it's so easy to take cities, and now it's just a slog fest. It's like, okay, you just want to call this... I'm just going to call this.
10: And defense is always something that should have to be an investment, not something that you just get for free because you tech to some arbitrary tech. Yes, exactly. Uh, Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's also why no one uses Renaissance walls, because it's actually faster and easier to get better than Renaissance-era walls by doing the civic side. Yeah. It makes no sense.
10: Yeah, unless I have that one city-state that lets me buy walls with uh, faith. faith, I don't even bother, in most games, upgrading to medieval walls.
3: Oh, even if I don't have it, I don't bother upgrading to medieval walls. It's just not worth the effort.
10: Unless that city is particularly threatened. But yeah, in in most cases, I don't.
3: Well, if it's threatened, I put units near it. (laughs) And the units do more than the walls. Hence, also going back to my idea of, hey, that encampment needs to also be taken on top of the city center. And if you start doing that, especially with an airport, then taking cities, yes, becomes a bit more of a slug, but it becomes more of an important slug.
0: You also talk about in your second article about a drop down menu for choosing your own start bias as a human player or that they could even apply to the AI. I guess the only air quotes difficulty with that would be is if you're, as you say, acknowledge some start biases are civ specific. Particularly in the case of the AI, I wouldn't want that to be random if the, <laughs> if the start bias is tied to the civ. It's like, hey, I'm Russia and I've got this boost for Tundra. I'm in jungle. Oh.
10: Right. Well, nah. the- The default should always be the specific start biases. I was just talking about that as an option in case you want to create like specific scenarios to get like a specific challenge where you want to be Congo in a desert start just to make the game harder for you for some reason.
0: Oh, so it's difficulty level plus then again. Hmm.
10: Yeah, that's a little further
3: than I'd go. I mean, I'm all for, I mean, if they want to change it so that you can individually change the difficulty level per player slash AI in the game, that's makes total sense because it's not like every other game does that let alone in multiplayer you can do that indeed so if you can do that well yeah single player yeah you can go okay well the german ai yeah let's throw them up on deity because they're really strong not really interested in doing a full-on deity game so we'll put these other ones down at say immortal or whatever and then you can adjust to see which ones grow bigger or not
10: the point of the article is, yeah, the, I think the more options the game gives to the player, the better. Yeah.
0: And to answer your question from the second article, and I think you've raised this already, Jason, near the start of this conversation of your articles. No, it's not too late for Civ 6. There's no reason to talk about Civ 7. <laughs> what is this nonsense?
3: Now we're going to have to talk about Civ 10 now.
0: Yeah. Oh. Or we can we skip a few, like Windows. Well, we have said before, there's too much pressure to do the next Civ. So we should do the next, next Civ, and then there won't be so much pressure.
10: Mhm if there's anything that is infeasible or impossible to do in Civ Six, then I hope that they at least consider them for future games instead of just yeah. continuing to do the same thing that they've done always.
0: Honorable mention from episode 279.
3: We didn't really get into the point where I like you for being a technophile. Next turn, I hate you because you're not teching up.
0: no. We don't get into the. Ah, look at this. Plus 10, plus 6, plus 8, plus this. Minus 134 Euro warmonger. Uh. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Way down now. Well, it's less than previous patches. (laughs) I guess. It's true. I have seen it as high as a minus 180.
3: Well, you should stop warmongering then.
4: No, you should keep warmongering because now the further bonuses or penalties don't matter. Just kill everything. That's the correct answer.
0: Look, Matt, if I stop warmongering, then they're going to start to get confused with themselves. And they've already <laughs> decided, so I might I might as well accuse yeah. to something. I might as well just do it.
1: Yeah, that's the spirit. Kill everything. If you're going to call me Dirty warmonger, I will show you what, exactly what a Dirty warmonger is.
0: On separate occasions on this episode, I've managed to both agree with Magin and Phil. I'm not sure what's happening, <laughs> Magin, save us all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you, why, what, what, what? How are you? Uh, why you agree with these things? Stop agreeing with things.
4: Things, huh? <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll remember that later, Mackie. <laughs> don't, don't get too mad when we start going to the objectifying the comments, because you just made me an object, and I love it. Because <laughs> now I have a Cass's belly. <laughs> yes.
3: Uh, as for other comments, apparently we joke around too much. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. Oops. Oh. And number one from episode 284. John. Yes, right here. Congratulations on now being the second most frequent guest co-host on this show. This is your ninth appearance. Well done. That's awesome.
6: Hopefully I don't screw this up and you invite me back.
0: Well, see, the problem is once you get to 10, we have to give you a t shirt, and I'm really not.
3: We have to send you home after that.
0: We can revoke that.
4: We don't have to keep that long term.
0: If Alpha Shard is listening, seeing as how you've been on the show 15 times, uh, your t shirt got lost in the mail. Sorry about that. There's nothing I can do about it.
1: Well, we kind of assimilated him, so, you know, same
6: difference. If you're out of t shirts, I'll take a coffee cup instead. So Mackie,
1: <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa! Why am I responsible for that?
4: Oh, well, you probably have ones you don't use anymore, right? No. Just be courteous and uh, don't no. give him one you dropped on Never. the floor too much.
0: Look, John is okay with a coffee cup, but he'd much prefer a coffee cup that was once owned by Mackie.
3: Well, that
1: that would be <laughs> John. <laughs> My cups, mine, can't have. This is going much better
4: now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've improved the quality of the I... conversation substantially. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: Call in today.
0: In North America, 301-637-7659.
4: In Europe, four four one two one two eight eight seven six five
2: nine. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about.
0: Log on to the series' official website at
1: thepolycast.net.
0: Thank you for listening to Polycast Evergreen, Season 11. I'm Daniel Dan Q. Quick. Resistance remains futile. Civilization One Clips, Copyright Microprose.
1: Civilization Four, Sound Clips, Copyright Take Two, Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.